Welcome to Sacred Realms. It's a great day in Hyrule, y'all. Welcome to Sacred Realms, a Zelda retrospective podcast for the last time in Season 5, Breath of the Wild. I am your host, Lyndon Willoughby, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Matt Willoughby, to help me tie up our discussion around this uh, one of truly the most noteworthy games of all time, I think. I mean, we'll make some judgments about the quality of this game uh, later, but I don't think it's a stretch to say that it's one of the most influential video games of recent memory. I was about to say, all time is a, is a, is a big bill, but a recent memory, absolutely zero qualms, qualifications, or uh, disagreements about that. Uh, for sure, it's been a fantastic ride, a fantastic game, a lot of things going on, uh, and we have a phenomenal recap episode to uh to get our teeth into today i think well you know what you need to bring to a phenomenal recap episode in order to just really put it over the top well there are three things that you have to bring to a phenomenal recap episode other than ourselves oh tell me uh that is whiskey uh cigars and or hand-rolled cigarettes of the pipe tobacco nature and uh one the only detective himself who must be present so i think we have all three of those tonight i'm in fact present the Hooray. detective in the house. Yes, that's true, ladies and gentlemen. Mike, the detective, is once again back to help us break down our thoughts on uh, not a chunk of game that we played this week, but a chunk of game that we've been playing over the course of many, many, 16? many, many weeks. This is episode 17, so. Ah, what well. year is this? <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of true, though. <laughs> it's been a It's been a chunk. I mean, seriously, like... Uh, this game is, uh, it is, it is beefy. There is quite a lot to get into here. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, I feel like, uh, it, I'll be surprised if we have another season of this podcast that equals the length of this one. I'm not exactly sure what that would, I guess, a sequel to this game. I was going like, to say Breath of the Wild 2 seems like it might be a good contender. Well, you know, I wish that we knew more about that game and I could say that I think you're probably right, Mike, but <laughs> we got nothing right now. So, yeah, that's all right. We'll find out before too long. I, I have hope. I do believe. Mike, how have you been doing? I've been good. I've uh, been trying to buy a house and sell a house, hanging out with the kiddos, um, just detectiving up a storm. And other than that, doing pretty fantastic. So I actually want to point out something. So this is by far the longest we've ever played a single game. And uh, it is totally well, for the show. I right. Mean, I mean, honestly, it's pretty up there for just in general for me. So Skyrim. when we when we put it down as far as weeks consecutively played, it is 25 because we had seven episodes between A Link to the Past and this and this. Uh, our first episode. And then we had a week hiatus where we were moving various places. Uh, so that totals up to 25 weeks worth of Breath of the Wild gameplay. Yeah. And you know what the crazy thing is towards the end there, really, like I would say in the back third, um, we we fell into the trap that we told ourselves we were going to try so hard to avoid, which was just like having to play each chunk of game week to week and yeah. record it that week. Well, but can you imagine if we didn't take those seven weeks to uh, gear up? Oh, it would have been a nightmare. Oh, it would have been awful. This would not have been an enjoyable experience whatsoever. Like, at least we got two-thirds of it roughly-ish, maybe half, out of the way. 
out up front, right? Like that gave us so much room to breathe. Otherwise, this would have been almost impossible. Yeah. And I would also say that most of like our base exploring and like discovering the world, um, our base exploration of the world and like collecting, you know, inventory and uh, doing a lot of stuff, I feel like was kind of loaded mostly into the front half of our playthrough. You know, uh, I feel like once we kind of got into that back third, we were mostly just kind of uh, we were clearing out a big plot for the most part, you know? Yeah, big plot, a lot of shrine diving, um, obviously uh, divine beasts like we were we were doing we were doing things right. And uh, I think a lot of what we did over the course of that uh, hiatus period was, like you said, just wandering around, kind of getting getting stuff set up to then propel us into the meaty chunk of the game right so i think that was definitely a a wise course of action on our part but i think whenever you plan for it too you kind of forget how much bloopy trail there really is to this game because i know whenever i start playing it even after having played it twice before this you forget certain things and i'm like oh there's this whole other side thing to go down where there's this whole area to explore that just exploring areas for me can take all of my Zelda oh, absolutely. <laughs> and so there's there's just a lot of meat to this game to sink your teeth into. Uh, Mike, I'm curious because Matt and I were kind of talking last week uh, about the difference that this game kind of had uh, playing it in this format for us. When we're, when we're on a schedule, we're playing in a, like a certain order for the most part. We're trying to keep up with the podcast. I mean, for you, do you feel like... Uh, it is as fun of an experience to play this game in that way, or do you kind of find yourself wishing that you maybe just had, I don't know, six to nine months to just like pick it up and and carve up in like 30 minute chunks whenever you're in the mood? Well, so I feel like if this was my first time, Lyndon, that I would have really balked at the, the structure of this because there's just so much open world and in all the open world games I play, uh, examples, Skyrim, Fallout and such, I love just being able to go do the intro. So in this case, Hyrule Plateau, and then just go off the rails and do whatever the heck I want for the next couple weeks. <laughs> so in this game, you, you gave me your structure before I kind of started my playthrough. I really did stick with it pretty well for about half the game and then as my time got more limited work got busy i kind of said to hell with linden's playthrough plan and decided to do whatever the heck i wanted anyway um, so you know but some of the most interesting conversations we had with some of our guests this season came from uh you know by virtue of the fact that they uh kind of branched out in that way i know i remember when we had melora on and she was telling us about uh <coughs> she was telling us about the way in which she had like basically sped run off of the Great Plateau and gone to the section of game that uh, she was going to play, which was Rito Village, uh, Valmetto, um, with like three hearts and some sticks, right? Um, and I and we actually got some really good conversation out of that. And I think that this is the kind of game that really benefits from from having done that sort of thing. Uh, but we're going to get into a bit more of that discussion later because I think it's going to factor greatly into where we come down on this game uh, from like a a ranking and judgment standpoint. Um, But either way, Mike, I'm really glad that we could have you here for this one. Uh, At this point, it wouldn't feel like a a ranking and recap without you. So 
So happy to be here. I love you guys. Are you? Oh, oh. yeah, I'm blushing. I love you too. Love you too, Mike. Oh, gross. Yeah. <laughs> um, are you? Uh, so, are you going to be joining us for our playthrough of the oldest of Zeldas that we're going to be starting over the next few weeks? You bet. Cool. We're all gonna we're all gonna be on that Zelda one and Zelda two train together. I was actually sitting down um, and trying to plan out that entire season earlier today, and uh, I think Zelda one I've got the schedule put together for that, and we'll have it published before too long. Um, Zelda two I think I need to consult an expert uh, who I believe uh, is going to come in the form of one Josh of Zelda Universe, who is a, a apparently a Zelda two mega fan and also a patron of this uh, podcast, and uh, bet you we're probably going to have him on the show to talk about it as well so can almost guarantee it assuming he agrees yeah absolutely so uh, he's going to help us get a schedule put together for that game but anyway all that is coming very soon but before we get into any of that we have got a game to get tied up here. So without further ado, let's get into some housekeeping. If you didn't know, Sacred Realms is a weekly re-examination of The Legend of Zelda one little slice at a time. Every week, we play a new section of a Zelda game, and then we sit down here to talk and to drop our hot takes. If that sounds fun to you, please head over to Apple Podcasts, hit that subscribe button, and be sure to leave us a review. Five-star reviews are greatly appreciated, and they have a chance to get a shout-out here on the show. If you want more Sacred Realms in your life, you can head over to patreon.com slash sacredrealmspod to get access to listener mail, vote on what game we play next as our patrons just got finished doing, and much more. One of the benefits that we do, of course, have for all Master Sword patrons and above is that they get their names read here on the show. Those legendary individuals are Dylan, Allie, Lennon, Leviticus, Melanie, Kolku, Rowan, Joshua, Nick, Hyrule Podcasters, Keep It Going Pod, Dante, Jep, Mary, Brittany, Davey, Haru the Mighty, the uh, admin of our new Discord channel, which I highly encourage everyone to go check out. There we go. Patrons, you already have a link to that. We'll be making the public link available after the airing of this episode. Derek, Albert, Mark, Andy, Cameron, Tyler, Ben, Daniel, Nick D underscore TV, Travis, Christian, Jonathan, Hyrule Interviews, a.k.a. Max Nichols, Garrett, and Drew. We could not make this show without your generous support. We appreciate you all so very much. Here's to the next season and then the, I don't know, eight or ten or however freaking many beyond that. <laughs> however many there are slash maybe in the future. <sighs> But that brings us into, of course, the Sacred Realms recap, which we do once per season, although I guess next season we'll do it twice, um, where we, at the end of a playthrough of a game, break down our thoughts into a few sections, uh, talk about how we felt about um, the game in its totality now that we're finished playing it. And at the very end, we rank the game against the other ones that we have played. I'm going to go ahead and read that ranking now, and I'll reiterate it when we get back to that section, which of course happens at the very end but just in case you forgot the ranking stands at the moment as number four a link to the past number three link's awakening number two skyward sword and number one ocarina of time where will breath of the wild land on that list we will have to find out but in the meantime let's get into part one of the sacred realms recap which is the plot in which we talk about the story that this game has told um and uh, yeah, I don't know. Talk about our, our feelings about it, how it wrapped up the story that it was telling. Um, and Matt, I want to send it over to you first because you were the one I think who came into this season with with one of the strongest feelings about plot in a Zelda game, which is that Skyward Sword, in your opinion, has the best plot of any Zelda game. Correct. So uh, obviously we were playing 
uh, we were playing this game after your self-professed favorite, right? And I'm just, I'm curious where you came down on the plot and the story of Breath of the Wild now that we're at the at the end of everything. Plot-wise, I, I have always really liked the, the plot of this game. I think um, as Zelda has progressed in age, at least from the ones that I have played, right, I feel like the plot and the story has just gained momentum and gained more of a centerpiece in the game itself. Um, whereas some of the older games that I've played now especially, um, it feels like the plot was kind of something that the game maneuvered around it felt like something that it needed to have but like but like didn't necessarily want yeah it it, like for breath of the wild and skyward sword well if you play breath of the wild the way that we played it where you really were encouraged or in our case forced to do all the things including memories including divine beasts including and, and i think in fairness we can probably call that uh optimal is the wrong word. I don't want to say that the game developers thought that there was a specific way in which this game should be played because I think actually a lot of things about it defy that. But I do think that from a plot standpoint, um, we kind of went and did everything that the narrative team on Breath of the Wild wanted us to do. Yeah, I would agree with that. So like if you look at it from that point of view, as in you play this game and you do all of the plot things. So... Not even necessarily all the shrines, because the shrines don't necessarily have plot to them. But if you do all the memories, all the divine beasts, and we'll just toss the DLCs in there because the Champion's Ballad specifically, I think, has at the very least some character building and it does shed a little bit more context on pre-Calamity Hyrule. So like, if if you throw all of that together uh, into this wonderful stew of plot, um, I think that it has a very phenomenal plot. It's definitely, as Max stated last week, it's up front darker than most other Zelda games because it's just about loss. It's about defeat. It's about a kingdom on the brink of utter collapse. It's about all of these things. And, and it's about how do you come back from that? And it's about how do you take this world that you basically get dropped into and how do you reclaim who you are as a person and the character of Link? How How does that provide context to the journey that you're on and how does that influence the sense of urgency and importance with which you have undertaken this quest? So all of that comes together in a very well done out of the box solution that Nintendo really put together in a spectacular way for Breath of the Wild. And I think it's a very unique way of telling a story that is hard to uh, duplicate in any other, definitely in any other Zelda game. I don't think any other Zelda game could have done a story like this, but what they have created with Breath of the Wild was a game that not only encouraged this type of storytelling, but brought out the best in that context. And, and I just really, really liked it. It was very creative. It was very well done. I think the fact that you could assemble that many words in a row to describe the plot of a Zelda game, um, I mean, really speaks to how much more substantive uh, the plot in this game is over some of those earlier examples that oh, you were yeah. talking about. Um, Sir Detective, how did you feel about the the plot and story of Breath of the Wild? So for me, the plot and the story are, are different entities in this game. The story, I think, was fantastic. So you've got a really deep story told through both the memories, your actions, and your new engagements with all the characters, the the descendants of the heroes, each new town you visit, you've got new story. And I find myself 
as I'm going, constantly being more drawn in to what's going on in this Hyrule. And then like Matt had said, the, the start is unique. The, you have already lost, you have been defeated and you were kind of trying your whole game to make up for what was lost at before your time. Um, which kind of goes along with the, he's lost his memories. You're also gaining all these memories back and have no memory of what occurred before, just like Link's having to go through. The plot, I, f- I think, is also really good. The way it's told was a little hard for me to follow, at least the first time, whenever you're first leaning into this game. You wake up, get told by an old ghost, hey, go forth and... <laughs> prosper. (laughs) And then you're like, okay, I guess I'm doing this now. It took a little while for me to get into it. My very first playthrough. I remember that Mm -hmm. being a kind of jolts the wrong word, but just kind of a man, where's this going? But I'm also used to other open world games where you get your essential start of the plot. Um, Just for an example, let's use uh, a Skyrim. Okay. There's a crazy big dragon. You're here. You're the dragon born, whatever that means. Now go forth and do the game. <laughs> yeah. In this game, I felt it's very similar. Like, okay, you're the hero. The one thing this game does have drawn is you're from a, uh, maybe not necessarily a long line of heroes, but you know this song and dance. Right. You're the hero. Go forth, get stronger, get items, and defeat the evil. So bearing that in mind, I was able to continue forth in the game thoroughly enjoy myself and kind of get the story pieced in bit by bit as you go. And I think by the culmination of this game, that really pays off. Uh, it is unique among the Zeldas. Um, you, know, you don't have like a big heavy front load on story, but it fills in the pieces pretty well. And, and there's some compelling story there. Mm-hmm. So what what's the differentiation in you between story and plot there? Because you said you, you like the story. So what what's the... So the story, the story to me there is, I I think when that fills itself in, you've got a really full fledged story, the plot of the game of the, the nameless evil that's beaten you. And then you're just kind of with, without some of the points plotting forth just into the unknown. Mm -hmm. I don't know that I like the plot until probably about halfway through this game. I think that's totally fair, and I hadn't really thought about differentiating the two like that, but I I think you make a really good point, is that the plot is more about defeating Calamity Ganon and rescuing Zelda. The story is what informs why that plot is important or necessary. Well, so are we talking about the difference between backstory and, um, and, and I guess like the story as it unfolds in the game? So I think to me, and from what I, and correct me if I'm wrong here, Mike, I don't want to mansplain your point to you, but like from what I'm hearing is like for Mike, and and honestly, now that I think about it a little more myself, the plot is the, the yellow markers that you get. And that is like, go to the divine beasts and then defeat Calamity Ganon. Like that's kind of the plot, yeah, right? It's very broad, very much like, okay, here's this uh, divine beast. What the heck are those up front? Mm-hmm. I know nothing about these divine beasts. And then there's this Calamity Ganyan, which is just a giant cloud in the sky from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. And you need to beat that. Yep. I'm over here like, why do I care about the giant cloud in the sky? What happened? And I'm really not invested in this plot at the beginning. Mm -hmm. Um, But as the story gets filled in, the plot also gets filled in. The the plot becomes meaningful. Yeah, but I feel like the story... this may be just me differentiating it in my head in a different way, but yeah, I feel like the story was much more filled out than the plot was until 
about midway through the game when essentially whenever you've got all the divine beasts kind of going and like, okay, now I know what this is all for. Now I know the characters and why I care about defeating the calamity. I I definitely think that one thing that is very true of this game is the non-traditional way in which the um, the the more specific strokes of the story are filled in. Um, and of course, you know, depending on where you go and, and when you go there, everybody experiences the story of Breath of the Wild in different ways. I mean, you know, even even though, Matt, you and I played this game basically exactly the same, mm-hmm. we still at, at some points caught certain cutscenes before the other person. Like I know you watched one or two memories before I did and vice versa, right? Yep. And I would say that we still probably absorbed the story in very similar ways, but not identical ways. And of course, there are, uh, there are many ways in which you could skip almost the entirety of the story. You could make it to Hyrule Castle and beat Calamity Ganon without ever having done anything past speaking to King Rome. And so that's what I'm saying with the plot versus the story. You're, you're kind of hitting it on the head. Yep. If you were to jump through all these hoops, bypass all these memories, and just go at point A, B, C, done, I think this game would fall very flat. So yeah. you've got to really Be fill it hollow. out. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, without all the memories to make you invested in the characters, without visiting all the different places and really filling them out. Like mm-hmm. Gerudo Town, if you just went and did the ver- very minimum in Gerudo Town, like, I guess that was a cool little sidetrack. Like, what do I care about in this clan of warrior women? If you went through and just did the bare minimum in... Goron Village, you'd be like, cool, there's rock people here. Yeah. But you've got to take the time to kind of fill out the story, get to know Daruk, get to know all the characters, and then it really kind of fills that in for you. Yeah, so like to, the, to, the game has no pathos without filling it in via the story, via the side quests that you do, like Terrytown. Huge, a huge pathos payout, right? And it is all about filling a space that is previously empty. And I think it's kind of a microcosm to what you're referencing is Hyrule of Breath of the Wild can be a very empty, scenic, I mean, gorgeous, scenic place unless you take the time to go fill in the gaps and, and to discover that for yourself. One thing I think is that you really got to have the heart of an explorer on this game Mm -hmm. to get everything out of that game. If you're not an explorer, if you don't want to see everything there is to see, you're going to get 30% of what this game has to offer. Uh, So at at this point, I do feel like we need to kind of we need to make a few distinctions here, right? Um, Because we do have to rank and review this game at the end of this discussion. And so for those purposes... I think what we need to do is to focus on, I think, what we can call the optimal version of this game, right? Which is the one that we played, right? Where you you conquer all the dungeons, quote, quote. You get all the story that is, like, there for you to get, and then you go beat the game, right? Yeah. Having done some side quests and some other things. Right. I, I agree that that's how, we're prob- that's how we are going to rank and review it. But I think it's worth mentioning that that's not necessarily everybody's experience, and I think that's not necessarily even the majority of people's experience. So I think that that's, uh, I I really appreciate Mike pointing all that out. I think there's a real case to be made that um, the majority of people, like you're saying, Matt, do not get to the end of this game having absorbed all of the stuff that you're talking about. Like, I I think that especially because, you know, this, this game came out at the dawn of the Nintendo Switch, which is kind of the return of the casual 
uh, gamers Nintendo console. Yeah. Right. Like tons of so many people have switches. Right. I mean, my my wife has probably played, I don't know, six or seven hours of Breath of the Wild. And I don't know that she's played six or seven hours of any other video game ever. Right. So like Mario Party. Well, yeah, but I'm talking. Yes, yes, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. But I'm but I'm talking like I'm talking a narrative game experience. Right. And I think that for a lot of people. They picked up a Switch, they picked up Breath of the Wild, and they might have even beaten the game, but certainly not in as, like, uh, I don't know, as complete of a way as we did. And, sure. I th- I, and I think in a lot of ways that actually is a point in the game's favor. But I want to move on and, and get back into a discussion more about the plot and the story, uh, because I think that this game, as not as unconventional as it is in its presentation, I think that it comes together to tell Again, if you've kind of if you found all of it, it comes together to tell one of the most compelling stories of any of the Zelda games. Um, And I don't know if I would say it necessarily tells the most compelling story of any Zelda game, because that's a really high bar. It is super high. Even among older games. I mean, like that that conversation is very wide and broad. Like you've got this game, you've got Skyward Sword in there, you've got Wind Waker in there. You've even got stuff as far back as Link's Awakening, which I think you could even make a case for like maybe why it wouldn't win, but why it should be included in that conversation. For sure. Right? Yeah, I think that that's all really true. But as to what you said about it being a point in the game's favor, I don't necessarily agree with that. I think that it, it is it is a point okay, in the game's... But that's not plot. We'll talk about that when we go rank it later. Okay, fine. Okay, so what I'm getting at overall is that I really enjoyed the story, the way it fills in as you go, which that's normal to story, right? Like as you go, you learn more of the story, but it's almost like a backfill, which is kind of unique. And I really thought that was interesting. Um, One thing too, and I'm not sure, Lennon, if this is the right place for you, for me to talk about this, correct me if I'm wrong. But one thing I thought was very interesting on a lot of open world games, which that falls in this category, um... I feel like there's a lot of meat to the game that people do never get to, like side quests and stuff like that. I think that this Zelda did a really good job of trying to make an open world game very accessible as you go. It really kind of funnels you to certain things. So you do get a lot of that story as you go through just by sheer directionality of where you need to go. Well, environmental storytelling is 1000% one of the greatest tools in this game's uh, arsenal. Um, just the fact of like how much how much feel you get for the history of this version of Hyrule just by wandering around it and not even necessarily exploring it, um, at least in the sense of like going into every ruined building to find a chest or whatever, but just by by virtue of absorbing the scenery, right? And seeing the ruined, uh, like garrisons and castles and, you know, seeing these towns that are kind of secluded and, uh, cut off from what used to be this huge kingdom. And even like I was saying in last week's episode, seeing a uh, Hyrule castle and it's like haunted, dilapidated state throughout the entirety of the game to the point where you could almost call it its own character. Right. Um, I think that 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 kind of environmental storytelling is absolutely key to the plot of Breath of the Wild, to making you feel invested in the plot of Breath of the Wild and in in trying to save Zelda and like thus redeem 
the ruined kingdom of Hyrule. Um, yeah, but but like also it's such a big part of the reason why I think it feels like it has that weight. You know, um, you you really do feel the gravity of what has happened uh, in this area. And I think that that's an incredible trick to pull off. And I'm not saying that past Zelda games have not done similar interesting things with environmental storytelling because they have. But I don't think any other Zelda game has given you such freedom to kind of absorb it on your own terms as this one does. Yeah, I think that's fair. It really does give you a lot of leeway on how you want to go about the story, absorb it. And it may be in a different order, but I feel like if you go through the game in the way it's meant to be played, you will eventually get the story piece together for you. Yeah, I completely agree with that. Um, so let's go ahead and talk about some of the big players that we have in this story, because I know in each uh, recap episode, we kind of talk about uh, that game's versions of of the main characters. And I always forget, I can never remember if we start with Link and then go to Zelda and then go to Ganon or whatever, but let's just go ahead and start with Link. Matt, where are you at with Breath of the Wild's incarnation of Link? This incarnation of Link is is almost as tabula rasa as any 2D Link. Like, I think that he is very much a blank slate. Um, I, I gather the understanding from a conversation, I think, with Max that um, the journal entries in the Japanese version of Breath of the Wild are all in Link's uh, first person perspective instead of the neutral third person, um, which I think could fill in that a little bit more for us. Um, Link has a little bit of um, personality and some of the dialogue choices that you can get, but in every cutscene that we get, in every memory, and everything that is done throughout the story and throughout the characterization of breath of the wild. Uh, Link is pretty much just a sounding board for the other character or for the player's personal thoughts and opinions about a situation. So I think that he doesn't bring a lot to the table as a character himself. Um, his abilities are pretty cool being able to climb and having all those acrobatic abilities and being the best swordsman in the realm. And like, you get a little bit of this of piecemeal of like what he might be just based on other characters, conversations. Like when Zelda in one of the memories is talking about how link helped her connect more with her horse and gave her some tips about like, you know, relationship building with, with her steed um you get some of that from mifa especially about how they grew up together um and how link was always rushing headlong into things and always needed her to heal him etc but like overall there's not a lot that just like sticks out to you about who link is as a person throughout the game so one thing i gotta interject here is that i feel like it's there's two links in this game there's the link that was and the link that is. Yeah. I feel like we learn a lot about the personality and history and story of the link that was through the memories and through other people's conversations with Link. You hear about how uh, Impa and, uh, I mean, not Impa, who's the gal at the Kariko village? Impa. Impa. Oh, yeah, Impa. So, yeah, <laughs> my girl Impa. Uh, I just, there's so many iterations, but so you learn a lot about who Link was to these people. And I think that's coolly leading into the amnesia portion of this game because mm -hmm. you're learning about who you were, which may not be who you are now. Yeah. And I've always liked to be able to project myself onto Link, which you can in this version of Link in a really new way, which is awesome. I love that in open world games where you pick your armor, you pick your, your play style, your weapons, and it really allows you to be who you want to be. But that doesn't change the fact that Link 
was a person in all these people's yeah. lives and he has a he has a real personality to them. Yeah. And I want to say everything that I said is not necessarily a bad thing. It's not a detractor. I think it's very much who Link was more or less designed to be in the original iteration of of the whole game franchise was that they literally call him Link because he he is a link between the character or the, the between the game and the player. And it's not necessarily a bad thing. I just think it lends to if we're talking about characterization of the character, it's, you know, yeah, much that. I do think there's an interesting thing that happens here where uh, so this being the first Zelda game that we've ever had with full voice acting. Except for Link, right? I say full voice acting, but it doesn't have full voice acting. But the cutscenes, any voice acting, sure, yeah, it does have voice acting. It has a cast, um, and they have this weird balance that they have to pull off, where like they have characters who are having fully voiced conversations, and like in past games, we've had situations where it's like it seems like Link is talking to people like they talk to him like he's just responded to them you know yes and you can get away with it because it was all like text bubbles you know Mm -hmm. but in this game there's actually voice acting so uh you know you kind of have to find a weird way to get around that i think that leads to this situation where the link of the past that you're talking about mike we definitely have details about him and his life that people mention like we know that he was a very skilled knight of hyrule and that his father was also a knight and like we know about all these characters histories with him especially mifas right um we have details about link in the past but even in those circumstances I think he has kind of a blank slate feeling just because we never witness him interacting with any of these people who are having these conversations with and about him. Um, And I think that that's just a very tricky balance to pull off. I'm happy that Nintendo decided not to cast a voice actor for Link. Uh, I'm kind of a purist in that way to where I think that Link should never talk Mm -hmm. in a Zelda game. Um, But then, of course, you get to the Link of the present who is trying to really reclaim his memories of that past life. And we know even less about this version of link. And I think that's an interesting point you bring up, Mike, where you're trying to figure out, can we even call them the same person necessarily? Because like, who are you without your memories? You know? Um, But I think towards the end of the game, the way that we played it, you're supposed to think that link has regained all of those memories. And I guess thus is, is that same person. Um, But yeah, I, I think you're right, Matt, that this version of link, um, just because the game around him is so much more expressive mm-hmm. and he is still basically the same old silent link, mm-hmm. I can understand your point of saying that to you, he feels like much more of a blank slate than we've even really had in something like Skyward Sword or yeah. Twilight Princess or whatever. Yeah, I mean, even like especially considering I think on the opposite end of this spectrum is Majora's Mask Link because you see the way that the characters interact with him so differently throughout the course of various quests and throughout the course of various conversations. Like they respond to Link in ways that like you said, while it may not be displayed via text bubble, it feels like something was said that they are then responding to. And you don't get any of that with this link, which again, well, that's not, that's not fair. That's not fair. Any, any conversation that NPCs have with link in the present has a lot of that classic link attitude. I mean, think about all the well, times. His, like, his dialogue options. Yes. But I'll I'm talking see about you later. Seriously. Like, <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm, I'm not, I'm not talking about like actual link prompted texts i'm talking about just conversations that happen in not necessarily cutscenes isn't the right word because there aren't really cutscenes in most of the other zelda games but I, I, I don't know maybe i'm expressing myself poorly here but um i'm gonna cut that out because there are cutscenes in every zelda game since breath of the wild or ocarina of time okay fine whatever just cut it out 
Yeah, no, I, I think it's a very interesting conversation to be had. Um, I think that, uh, yeah, I think it's it's a boon to this version of Link that you can interpret him and his character in so many ways. And again, I think that that just goes back to, um, you know, the virtue of Breath of the Wild being the kind of game that you experience in any one of a multitude of different ways. Um, would any of you say that this version of Link is your favorite version of Link? No. I would not say that he's my favorite link from a story standpoint. Um, there are many things I enjoy about this link over other links. I really do enjoy the the versatility of this link. Mm-hmm. The getting to pick his armor, his play style. Um, I, mean, I think the closest thing I kind of get to this so far has been in Majora's Mask, where some of those masks really do affect your powers. Um, and you can kind of do that the way you want to do it. But he is a very... I think, like Matt had said, kind of an intentionally blank slate on this point to where you can kind of make this Link's fighting style and everything how you want it. Because, Matt, you you wear the Fierce Deity in Knight's Armor. Yep. That, that's your Link. Yep. I like to wear, uh, depending on what playthrough I'm doing, a, a completely different thing each time. I've done the Knight's Armor as early as I could get it the whole way through, minus the climbing gear whenever I'm climbing. Absolutely, um, always. <laughs> and, you know, then I've, I've done... You know, with, with some of the DLC, I've done different stuff like that, but it really is like it's the link I'm feeling in the moment. Yeah, I think this link does allow you a lot more headcanon. Like the reason, and I, I kind of constructed this cool headcanon for myself around this link is the reason I always wear the Fear Stady mask, regardless of whatever else I'm wearing, is that the Shrine of Resurrection kind of gave Link this different, like it, it almost Im- imbued him with that a little bit. So like oh, he got almost, powers, yeah, almost like after like afterlife Link or Ooh. something. But like I, it's just a really fun thing that like the Shrine of Resurrection changed him in more ways than just revitalizing his body. But uh, you know, just kind. I think this link does allow for that as far as he has he definitely has more combat versatility more uh, just general versatility he can actually jump freestyle you know instead of just trying to jump over a little gap he can jump on his own um climb he can swim a lot of other links can't swim that i know of unless you get like flippers like zora flippers and he can be the mad bomber he can be the mad bomber (laughs) and he can he can float over people and just drop bombs like an ac-130 and uh like he he's got a lot of really cool abilities right but i think as a character i would not say he is my favorite no so let's as, as, okay. So neither would I, honestly. Like I really like this version of Link. I do. Um, I have other versions of Link that I have a bit more of an emotional attachment to. I think, and that's probably what it comes down to the most for me. But I think still one of the great ones. I think this is definitely the Link of our current era of of games, right? Yeah. In much the same way that the Link of Ocarina of Time was that, like, like that was kind of the poster version of Link for a while, you know. And I think that this version of Link will similarly be that for a while. Yeah. yeah. I do think it's funny that he is so incredibly short. Like he's like less than five feet tall, I think. <laughs> I saw I saw something sometime that was comparing Breath of the Wild Link to other characters in the series. And he's like seriously like four foot ten or something. It's crazy. So get ready for him to get the cyberpunk treatment where you can pick his height, his <laughs> genital size. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't gonna go that far, but hundred percent, yeah, genital size. I think I think this link definitely probably has a bit of a Ken doll thing going on. I most likely, let's be honest. Yeah. Hey, you know, who knows what Mifa's into? Ooh, whoa. Hey. 
Anyway, <laughs> let's go ahead and start. Let, let's talk about this game's version of Zelda. Um, Ooh, good choice. Okay, right, because I, I think this is what we. This is where we have something a little bit more to dig into. And Mike, you were not on last week's episode, but Max Nichols, uh, friend of the show, uh, colleague, wonderful guy, uh, he made. You really just have to throw colleague in there every opportunity you get, don't you? I would too. I do. I really do. <laughs> It's contractually obligated. Um, so, no, he made the assertion that, to him, Zelda is actually the main character of this story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I mean, there, there's always that argument to be made in certain games. Of, I mean, it's the Legend of Zelda, right? right. I'm, I'm sure... Uh, I, I do apologize in advance. I did not get time to listen to that episode because of work. You're right. But um, I think that that can be said for several of the games in... And the fact that she is the main catalyst for the story in a lot of these games. And when I say that, I mean she is the integral piece of the puzzle that is required to essentially win or lose. Mm-hmm. And Link is doing his his part, right? But without her, it's still not the Legend of Zelda. Yeah. And so I think in this game, it becomes very important because without her, that defeat that Link suffered 100 years ago is completely moot. If he had lost and she didn't do what she did 100 years ago, goodbye story. I mean, she has been holding this thing at bay by herself for 100 years, um, which I think is pretty impressive. And I really do feel like the, The Legend of Zelda is appropriate to this game because you're piecing together her story as well as Link's the entire time. Yeah, I think Zelda has the most characterization, the most personality of any of the cast of NPCs, champions, main character, like anything. I think Zelda is extremely well portrayed in this game, even more so. Honestly, I think this Zelda is better portrayed than uh, Skyward Sword Zelda. I was going to say that, and I was expecting you to come at me. No, and not I'm at really, all. I'm really happy that we're kind of on a page. No, I so- think I think this version of Zelda ha- has better characterization, better personality, more stake, more importance, more more personal motivation. Yeah, like it's the way that they build her character up to like be so invested in her powers and her inability to manifest her powers and her relationship with Link. I still think Zelda and Link's relationship in Skyward Sword is maybe a little bit better because it's, it is the whole time friendly and, uh, almost romantic whereas Zelda's but I like I, I they're just different I don't know better so, or worse is the right no, word I get but. 100% what you're saying so in in Skyward Sword it is very much kind of the boyfriend girlfriend like yeah coming of age I'll, I'll say lovers take that what you will yeah story and physical th- or not you make your own 100% right? whatever you like, want to do with that it's your story guys but in this game I get very much more the the silent bodyguard versus really active character that is Zelda. Mm-hmm. So Link is kind of her protector, her her bodyguard. And of someone who's done just like a little bodyguard work, mm-hmm. I mean, you're really supposed to be in the background, like seen, not heard kind of kind of thing. Yeah. And I feel like I get that vibe from Link. Um, and he's, I think he admires Zelda in this game. Um, I get that from, maybe this is me reading into the, the story and the, the memories. Um, but so I think that he kind of admires Zelda and I think that it's her magnetism that's kind of spurring Link on as opposed to the vice versa in this story. Um, but I, I do get her strength and I think that, 
you know, you talk about Link being a blank slate that you can kind of imprint on. I think that Zelda's struggle in this story is very real and and still very understandable to people. Yeah. Um, having something imposed upon you that you don't quite understand but needing to fulfill, I feel like in every way, shape, or form, I mean, someone has, I mean, everyone's gone through something of a similar nature. Mm. And I think you can kind of put your feelings behind Zelda's um, desire to, to fulfill her destiny. Yeah, I think that that's 1,000% true. Um, and I think because of that reason, I agree. I think that's the main reason that I feel like this version of Zelda is maybe a little bit more emotionally resonant to me than Skyward Swords, which I think we had said was our previous um, previous favorite, yeah. previous MVP in this category. I still love Skyward Swords version of Zelda, and I think that is mostly because of exactly what you're saying, Mike, which is that I care more about her relationship with that version of Link than I really do about this Link and this Zelda. But I think that as a character unto herself, this version of Zelda is superior. And I and I have more emotional investment with her struggle. And I will say that I am incredibly excited by the possibility of seeing a continuation of this version of Zelda's story as we go forward. I don't know to what extent she'll be involved in the sequel to Breath of the Wild, but I really hope that um, it is in some way that organically builds on a on an incredibly solid foundation of of character building that we've gotten here yeah for sure and and, you know i think you can make the argument that zelda and leak do do form some for some form of friendship at the very least possibly romantic attachment at the most but all of that to say that the the zelda link relationship of skyward sword i think has things uh, uh, over this but like you said Lyndon, that as as much as we love Skyward Sword Zelda, the journey that she goes on is a little too nebulous. It's a little too epic and grand and like hard to grasp. Well, she's we we don't see what happens to her for most of the game. Exactly. And, and even even when you do figure out what it is, it's like, oh, I'm the goddess reincarnated and I have to go do this crazy thing. Whereas Zelda's whole journey in Breath of the Wild is I'm a teenage girl who's had all of this pressure. Her mom has died. She's got all these things. She's got the weight of the world and she's just struggling interpersonally and personally with her father, with her friends. She feels isolated. Like those are very real things that people can can gravitate to and understand. So I, and was, I think that does her a lot of favors. I, I think you're correct. And I think that like you had just kind of mentioned and brought it back to me, the dealing with her father. So everyone has a mom or dad. Right. And I feel like that's something that Nintendo's kind of not not exploiting is definitely the wrong word, but kind of playing with in this story is that everyone has a sense of, you know, they they want to please not, the father. Yeah, figure, please right? the father yeah. figure, please the mother figure. Like no one wants to be a disappointment, right? So I think that seeing how her father Roan treats her and her that really kind of brings home why she's doing what she's doing and helps you understand what she's feeling, which I think is a big step. Yeah, I agree. I will say before we move on from Zelda that I think that depending on what happens, I've, I feel like I've, I, I find a nickel for every time I said this the last few weeks, I'd be a rich man. Um, for, depending on what happens in the sequel, I think that the potential is there for me to feel like this Link and this Zelda do have the best relationship um, because I think we have a good foundation and depending on what the story of that game is, uh, we could potentially get there, but I don't think we're there just yet. 
Well, and Nintendo is constantly learning, right? Like each of these games is a stair step to each other. Can you imagine if we had Skyward Sword, Zelda Link? Part two, yeah. Well, with memories. Just think about like memories being included to fill in what Zelda was doing while she was on her own. Yeah. We already love that Zelda, right? I I feel like most people do. Imagine getting that filled in and seeing some of her Banff moments just by herself or filled in by her her memories. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely agree. So one last thing about Zelda before we move on. I think every time we've done this before, we've tried to speculate on whether or not that game's version of Zelda and Link had a romantic attachment or a platonic one. I think we decided that Ocarina of Time, Link and Zelda had a platonic relationship. Yep. Link to the Past, platonic. She wasn't even in it. Link to the Past, she was. Fair oh, much. sorry, Link to the Past. I'm, I keep getting confused with Link's Awakening. I don't know why, but... Yeah, yeah. she's not in Link's Awakening. No. Yeah, Link uh, to the Past, yes, platonic. Yes, uh, Link's Awakening, uh, Link and Marin, I think, definitely had a, a somewhat a romantic spark, relationship. if you yeah, will. a spark. Um, and then Skyward Sword, I think we definitely feel like they had a romantic relationship. For sure. So where are we at with this one? I think it developed into a romantic relationship. I, I really concur. I, I think that... It really showed the broad spectrum. So like very few times do I feel like a, a relationship starts out perfect and romantic. You know, yeah. you're kind of learning your way through it. She kind of doesn't like him at the beginning, but it, it's almost tropish. The the character she doesn't like, she rejects. And then through his actions and his loyalty begins to like him. Yeah. And I think that, like you said, Lyndon, given more time, I think this blossoms into something. Yeah. Um, the, I think that at the beginning, the antagonism that is, uh, portrayed there is really a reflection and a, um, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? It, it is Zelda, uh, imposing her feelings about herself onto Link, which is why she doesn't like Link. She doesn't, she doesn't dislike Link because of who he is. She dislikes Link because of who her, who, what she sees as her failings and his success is, ref, is like absolutely in stark contrast to what she sees as her own failings. Mm-hmm. And like at, throughout the course of her growth as a person, she grows beyond that to see Link for who he is, which is, I think, one of the really amazing ways that they develop Zelda as a character is that she matures to the point where she can no she no longer sees Link strictly in the context of her own personality, but for who he is and like grows to respect. And I truly do believe love, whether platonically or romantically, uh, for, for him, for who he is. I'm going to start by saying, I agree with everything you just said. Also to everyone watching or listening to this podcast, Dr. Matt charges by the hour for his counseling. (laughs) (laughs) Unfortunately, he's not on most nationally recognized insurance plans. I'm on zero of those. And has no actual licensing. (laughs) Zero licenses. (laughs) Oh, man. Uh, And of course, it's worth mentioning that we do get probably the most explicit confirmation in-game in Breath of the Wild that there was a romantic feeling on Zelda's part towards Link, and that comes from Cass, who reveals that to be true in the final um, cutscene when we we talk to him. Uh, He he reveals that his teacher had an unrequited love for Zelda, and that Zelda only had romantic feelings for her appointed knight, which is revealed at the end of that conversation to be Link. Isn't it unrequited? I thought it was unrequited. I don't know. I've never heard it pronounced. Look it up, kids. I've just heard it spelled. Look it up, kids. (laughs) I've just just heard it spelled. Wow. (laughs) I've just seen it spelled out. I've never heard it pronounced. I said what I said. It's fair. You know what we mean. 
Yeah. So let's move on to Ganon. And I feel like we can spend a little bit less time on this one because Matt Matt and Max and I really canvassed this version of Ganon quite a bit in the last episode as we kind of got to the end of the game. But um, I think just to catch you up, Mike, where we kind of landed is that this version of Ganon, while neat in concept as being the the really first version of Ganon that has ever just like manifested as as a culmination of Demise's curse. Um, Calamity Ganon is cool as a concept. Uh, there's a lot of dramatic tension there, and you definitely want to defeat this force of prime evil that has de- destroyed this this country. Um, but we felt like this version of Ganon really lacked any kind of personalization or personification that would have made it. Uh, and I say it because I don't even think you can really call it a him. It's it's really more of a a, a being than anything else. Uh, I, you just can't assign any kind of emotion or motivation to it. Well, no, and I feel like that's one of my I wouldn't say qualms, but one of my biggest desires of this game is that it would have filled in more Ganon's story. Because yes, you've got this. I mean, pretty epic big bad that's present from the very beginning of the game. You see him the entire time, but you have so little character development that it, it's it's kind of a waste, in my opinion, of what could be some more story with him, um, whether through some cutscenes, some memories involving Ganon, but he's just a cloud in the sky till you go fight his butt. I mean, that's all I got. He's the spaghetti monster in the sky. Yeah, exactly. The, the, the mean one. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that that's definitely true. And I'm glad that you kind of agree with us because I think that uh, I think that there really there is a cool story being told here. But you have to kind of embrace Ganon as a force more than as a character. And for that reason, I definitely don't think that I can say that this is my favorite version of Ganon. Um, it is. I mean, again, we're kind of splitting hairs here, but it is a different being than the Ganons that we fought before. I mean, all of the Ganons in other Zelda games were descended from the version of Ganondorf that we meet in Ocarina of Time, whether it be in one timeline or another. And this is the first time where it's like, okay, that version of Ganon has been dead for years and now Demise's curse is re-manifesting um, and you're trying to thwart that process. So yeah, it's a cool story. There's just not as much to latch onto there. I will say it's it's not my least favorite version of Ganon. Really? Well, that because, surprises me. Well, but just think about like... I mean, it's just so unique. But how much was there to really latch onto in let's say a link to the past's version of ganon like a That's lot of fair, those a lot of those older zelda games ganon is nothing more than the final ugly boss that you have to fight right and you really don't you know, like he's a he's a big pig man who's trying to steal the triforce he, he's he's the demise behind the gear him with sometimes less interesting gear hymns yeah, exactly. And even in newer games that take place in that timeline, like A Link Between Worlds, we'll get to that at some point later. But like, you know, Ganon shows up in that game as well. And like, it's still just this very Spoiler much alert. It's, it's still just this very much like indistinct monster form of Ganon. And you don't really get any of the shading of what we know from the lore to be the backstory of that version of Ganon, which is that at one yeah. time he was Ganondorf, who was locked into the sacred realm and became ganon uh by the power of the triforce of of power you know so yeah i i I don't think this is my least favorite version of ganon but i do not enjoy it as much as ocarina of time or certain others i think that's fair and i i want to agree with you on really all of those points mostly just in the fact that i think that they took an interesting direction 
I don't necessarily think it's my favorite direction, but also given the context of the game that they laid out, and I said most of this in last week's episode, so I'm really going to leave my thoughts here, is that given the context of the game that they have laid out, I think that there was really not many other options that they could have gone with the big bad and with Ganon itself. So uh, while it's not my favorite version, probably not my least favorite version, definitely some big points for uniqueness of enemy. And I, so I'm, I'm going to try and keep it brief on that too. I think that he was unique, but like you guys had said earlier, so say this is your first intro to the Zelda universe, and this is the game you kick off from. For us, Ganon already has form and face and story because of the previous iterations. Mm -hmm. If you were just to kick off with this Ganon, I feel he's very lacking because there's no characterization to show why he's evil, what he's up to, other than the fact that he wants to destroy Hyrule. And without all that other stuff to play off of, which I think is what Nintendo was kind of banking on, Mm -hmm. was that you have so much Ganon backstory, especially coming off Skyward Sword with mm-hmm. Calamity and, and Demise, I feel like you're just kind of falling flat on a, okay, well, evil is out there. And evil without a face or some story isn't compelling to me. Yeah. He's very um, slightly more targeted hurricane or slightly more targeted tornado, force of nature-esque. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I will say it one last time. We'll just see what happens with that desiccated body of Ganondorf in the sequel to The Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild. All right, new rule. You can no longer bring up the sequel for Breath of the Wild as a point for this game anymore. Why won't they show me another trailer? (laughs) Do it, Nintendo. Do it. Do it. Do it. (laughs) Use your hate. (laughs) Let it flow through you. Unlimited power. All right, this is this has been our uh, Star Wars rabbit that, trail for the yeah. Ten, we just the, used we just used our entire bank of context-free Star Wars jokes in one in one row. <laughs> um, there could be more. Uh, sure, there's always, very well. There could be. always be more. Well, let's go ahead and get into part two of the Sacred Realms recap. But could you agree less? Huh. Uh, if I tried really hard, maybe I could. I don't know. Question for another time. Part two is, of course, where we talk about our best dungeon, and I think we want to have a conversation about the concept of shrines just in general. We did not pick a favorite shrine out of all 120, um, plus all the ones that you do in the Champions Ballad, but we we, we will have to mention them. Um, because now that I'm thinking about this, Matt, I don't even know... Like, okay, so let's split this into two conversations, one of which is going to be very short. Let's go around the table and everyone say which divine beast was your favorite. And I'm going to leave out the final trial from the champions ballad because we already said that that was our favorite last week. Right? Okay, fine. Yeah. I mean, yeah, sure. That was our favorite. It was awesome. Um, and our thoughts on Hyrule Castle and to the extent of which it was or was not a dungeon was also litigated quite heavily in that episode. So um, so let's just focus on the divine beasts, which are the only things in this game that I think it thinks are dungeons, right? Yeah, I would agree with that. Okay. Mike, you first. What was your favorite divine beast? So this is a little bit of a loaded question because I feel like it's been long enough between each of my playthroughs, this being my third, that... My Divine Beast favorite has kind of changed each time. Um, there for a while, I, I would say it was Vonaboris. I think this playthrough, my favorite was actually Vometo. Hmm. 
And uh, I just enjoyed the mechanics of uh, of Von Meadow with the, having to shift the way the wings were tilted. Yeah. Um, kind of the aviation aspect of it and kind of navigating that. And then for whatever reason, um, the what is the blight Ganon on Vometto? Wind blight. Wind blight was just pretty fun for me this time. Um, he's not hard. Just the mechanics of it were were pretty entertaining. Um, and also, I just kind of love shoving that in Rivali's face because I hate him. Fair. And so, just being like, "Hey, Rivali, that, you know that guy that killed you a hundred years ago? I whooped his butt easy. Kind of did something <laughs> for made him my bee." Yeah, I mean, basically that. Um, yeah, I'll go next. I actually am kind of in the same place with you, Mike. I think before this playthrough, I would have said that uh, Thunderblight, Ganon, and Vonnevoris were my favorites. I still think that Thunderblight Ganon is the most fun boss to fight mm-hmm. um, because Thunderblight Ganon is legitimately challenging, mm-hmm. especially on Master Mode. Like, you know, I played that boss last with the best stuff, and I had the hardest time with it. And I think it's just such a – it is such a fun boss. Um, the speed that you have to engage with that boss in is a great time. The fact that electricity is thrown in and you're constantly getting hit and like dropping all your stuff, you know, it's just, it's tough. It's a tough boss fight. And I really enjoyed it for that reason. Um, I think that my overall favorite divine beast is also Va Meadow just because I like, you know, I talked a lot last week about how sense of place is such a big deal for me and how much I like dungeons it, it to, in some ways, even more so than how difficult that dungeon is, right? That's not always true, but it's it's true a lot of the time for me. And I think that Va Meadow has the coolest sense of place of any of the divine beasts, right? Like you are on this giant bird circling Rito Village. You see the entirety of Hyrule beneath you. You're altering the flight path of that giant bird and – the interior of it, like at all times, you can kind of see the exterior. You feel like you're in this giant flying machine, which uh, which I knew no I you knew are. I knew no good would come from city folks and their flying, flying machines. machines. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, but but yeah, I, I think that you really feel like you're doing something cool when you're in Vomito, and so much so to the point where it is my favorite, even though I think it's probably the easiest one. Fair enough. Uh, my favorite is Vonnaburis, uh, because it is the most challenging. Um, I think that it has a lot of really cool mechanics, the moving of the neck and the tail and the inside portions to uh, trigger doors via electricity. I've said many times that I think electricity is the most well done environmental mechanic in the entire game, and it leads into the best boss fight of the main game. Uh, or of the four divine beasts, at least. And uh, yeah, I think Vonnaburis was really well done. I will totally 100% agree with you that Va Meadow has the best sense of place and scale. Um, no no qualms there. Um, also, I think Va Meadow has uh, a really cool... <sighs> I just cut that part out. I'm just going to agree with you on, uh, on sense of place and scale. And I just really enjoy... F- seeing Hyrule from a thousand feet up. Cool. Things a lot of fun. So now that we've all said what our favorite dungeon, quote unquote, is within the context of, I think, what Nintendo thought were dungeons in this game, let's move <laughs> on. Let's move on to another version of this conversation in which we talk about this game's handling of the dungeon as a concept, just in general. Y'all already know where we're going with this. We've talked about it ad nauseum, but the entire game is over now, and I think that we can make some some judgments in totality of the way that this is done. What dungeons? 
<laughs> Only one that I can think of. I mean, yeah, exactly. So that's the thing. If you so really the final trial, I think, is the only one that could potentially qualify. Maybe Hyrule Castle if you're feeling generous. But like, honestly, I, I think that I am not not spoiling anything about my overall thoughts on the game here. But I will say that if there is any one thing that is really a point against Breath of the Wild in any major way. For me, it is it is the divine beasts in replacement of dungeons. And that's not controversial. I feel like a lot of people feel that way. I feel like I, I don't know that I've ever really seen anybody really going to the mat uh, for divine beasts as a good, viable replacement for classic dungeons. Um, and I think that there's a really good reason for that. Like, I just don't think that they fill that same role. I don't think that they carry that same enjoyment value. And I don't think that they feel classic Zelda uh, in a way that they really needed to. The rest of the game, it does things that are brand new. It handles things in ways that no other Zelda has. But it still manages to come back to a square one of being Zelda at every single moment. It feels like Zelda even when it's breaking all of the rules that Zelda has ever had in any in every way except for the Divine Beasts, which I think are just uh, – they, they feel normal video game in a way that the rest of this game just doesn't. So – and I agree with you on, on – that whole point. So my thing in advocation, if that's a word, mm. uh, of the way that Nintendo did this, is you get four divine beasts, which are supposed to kind of fill the void of dungeons. I, I don't think you can call them dungeons. But you also get 120 shrines. And these shrines, while not dungeons in, the, in and of themselves, they do scratch all the puzzle itches. So I think... In my opinion, what I think Nintendo is is banking on in this is between the overworld combat, which is heavier than normal for a, a Zelda, in conjunction with all the shrines, you're supposed to kind of— and, and, and that's definitely true, by the way. I think that's a very fair thing to say, that the, the, the density of challenging combat in Breath of the Wild is, is far—like head and shoulders above any other Zelda game. Agree. Because what I would say in this game is, in certain other games, and I'll just use my, so far my favorite game, which is Ocarina of Time as the example, it can almost be a little boring at certain parts in the overworld until you get to the next dungeon, which there's plenty of dungeons. You have your three as, as child Link, and then the rest as adult Link, and you're getting to each of those as kind of the next milestone of, hey, I need this dungeon to get my next gear, I need my dungeon to get my next story beat in this you're getting story beats in a different way you're getting your combat and puzzles in a different way so i think they kind of did away with the dungeon concept in in lieu of all this new facility that they're using i i miss dungeons personally but i see what they're doing and i i was never bored playing breath of the wild well, that that's definitely true. And I would even go so far as to say that I think shrines were a net positive to this game. I think that there's this really interesting thing, thing that shrines do, which is that they add so many of the things that I loved about Portal to Zelda. Ooh. Right? That's a cool point. Because each – like each – I think I've said this in one of the previous episodes. Each shrine is basically a portal chamber, you know? 
like it is it is contained and it has a self-defined puzzle within each one that you have to solve and some are easier and some are harder Uh, and i i think that that is a good thing and i think that that's a wonderful use of the main set of tools that this game gives you which is the runes of your sheikah slate um i think that they exist on a very specific set of rules and mechanics and physics and they like the shrines end up being a very fun playground in which to use those and in many ways in which to find ways to break those like but without but without feeling like you're cheating you know when you find a way around a shrine's main puzzle more often than not i feel like i know there are people who are really good at actually breaking this game but that you know we were never doing any of that but what we were yeah. doing was using the tool set that we've been given to try and find ways to circumvent the solution that the shrine is supposed to have if if that even is such a thing and that's totally possible and i think that that is such a triumph of game design like I think that the the amount of like the amount of work that went into making that as seamless as it is, um, I'm sure that's why this game took seven years to make, right? Uh, and it is highly impressive. That being said, I still don't know if I can say that shrines plus divine beast equals what I want to get out of dungeons. Um, and I know that makes me sound like a selfish gamer, where I'm just like, give me all the shrines and give me dungeons, right? But I I don't know. I I think that uh, what I'm really missing, it it always, it it comes back to to sense of place for me. The divine beasts, none of them feel like they have any sense of place whatsoever. They all just feel like bigger shrines, except for Bahmeadow. And and in some ways, even that one just feels like a big shrine, but you're in the air, so it's cool. Um, But like, what I am missing is feeling like I am delving into the depths of this version of Hyrule. I am missing... I am missing the version of Breath of the Wild's Hyrule where the Forgotten Temple has like puzzles that you have to go through. Like I'm missing this version of Hyrule where you sink to the bottom of a lake and find a hidden temple there. You know, uh, like it's just to me, it's been such a part of Zelda's identity from the very beginning. And I just don't think that this game has a good Breath of the Wild version of that. So, and Lyndon, I'm going to pose to you a little question of, do you think that's at all because of the fact that you get your weapons in an entirely different way, your your weapons and items in in an entirely different way in this game? Yes. So you start off with the Sheikah Slate, which is by all accounts, the, I'm going to go ahead and just say coolest item that Zelda's had to offer so far. Sheikah Slate's badass. Yes. And so you're getting essentially most of your cool BAMP items up front with the ability to upgrade, which is also freaking cool. But then you have weapons readily available throughout the game, whether through enemy fights, chests. And so traditionally we go to the dungeons to get these cool items that stay with us the rest of the game. And with the way they've chosen to evolve this game, I think that they kind of had to pivot on dungeons because you've already got the items i think that that's true max said something uh oh i think it was max might have been cody Uh, i don't remember sorry we love you both yeah y'all are great uh so somebody recently made the point that what it really comes down to more than anything else is the fact that uh, this had to have been max which is the fact that breath of the wild gives you so much more scale and ability of movement than other Zelda games. And the fact that you are basically able to freely move throughout entire environments, both vertically and horizontally, makes traditional dungeon design very difficult to solve for. And I am totally sympathetic to that. 
Like I completely understand that you cannot have the forest temple in Ocarina of Time just transplanted into Breath of the Wild because then what's stopping you from just climbing the wall into the chamber above you, right? Instead of having to go through a series of corridors and get a key and do that, you know, like I understand that it it does not work the same way. I just think that there is a version of Breath of the Wild or at least a version of a Breath of the Wild style game that is able to give you something that feels similar. Of course, I know it's not going to be able to be the exact same. It's going to have to have its own set of conventions and its own set of restrictions. But I think that it is possible to do it within within the the you know the um, roster of abilities that we have in Breath of the Wild. And I think, in fairness, Nintendo knows that. And I think basically what Breath of the Wild was was I think what Breath of the Wild was was their go at just making sure that the systems by which they solve puzzles. I think that they they know that and now they can iterate on it knowing that they have a foundation of those abilities and those mechanics. My my firmest wish for Breath of the Wild 2 is that they include more dungeon-esque aspects. Wow, that was hard to say. <laughs> dungeon-esque aspects? Yeah, man, I can English is hard, guys. <laughs> I think that I don't disagree with anything y'all have said, I would easily sacrifice 60 of these shrines to get the four divine beasts made into real dungeons. Like absolutely no questions asked. Um, while I, I appreciate what shrines are and what they do for, uh, puzzle solving within breath of the wilds mechanic or within breath of the wild sandbox, I should say, um, I don't think that divine beasts as they are plus shrines as they are equals uh, the dungeon experience that I really look for in a a Zelda game. And while I appreciate that Breath of the Wild is definitely purposefully doing something very different, I don't think that it gained more than it lost by making this change. Personally, that's fair. I think I agree with that point. Um, I don't think I really have very much to add to it. I think that's a pretty good summation of my feelings on the topic. Mike, do you have anything that you want to throw on top of that before we? No, I I would say that I, I concur somewhat on that. I really did enjoy a lot of the shrines standalone. I I feel like the mechanics. The feel was really good, especially exploring and then finding a shrine hidden somewhere was one of the better kind of revelations or or points in this game for me. It's amazing. Whenever whenever you're you know, you get the chime, right? Okay, I'm near a dungeon, and then you search around for 20 minutes in these freaking rocks, and you finally find the hidden entrance and you get to that dungeon or the not dungeon, but shrine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> then then I was very excited. And that kind of was like a, a a constant like Zelda high for me as we go through. But yes, I would like to maybe sacrifice some of these lesser shrines. Th- there were several I could do without. Yeah. And some of them was minor test of strength, get really redundant mm-hmm. as you go. Um, whenever I'm already feeling really good about a major test of strength, then my next one's a minor. I'm, I'm a little meh about it. Yeah. I think that, like I said, I would sacrifice half of the shrines, not all of them shrines by themselves are 
excellent. And you're absolutely right. It's that constant rush of dopamine that just like gets you going, right? It, it's the it's the um, achievement drug that video games thrive on. And I think that they're good. I think that minor and even modest tests of strength don't add a lot. I think some of the um, some of the blessing shrines don't add a lot. And like if you start cutting those out. You save a lot of room for dev time to go in and create well, ble- a more comprehensive. <laughs> yeah. Blessing shrines is kind of complicated. Though, I'm not going to say I didn't say all. I said some. Okay, because d- some blessing shrines are really great. I mean that that's how we get like Eventide Island and for like sure. labyrinths. I'm, and I'm stuff. thinking blessing shrines like the Goron trial of uh, manliness, or oh. whatever, where you just like <laughs> stand on a hot plate, yeah. like. Don't care about that at all. That's fair. Um, That's you know what I mean? Fair. Like it's those types of shrines that I'm like, or um, the one where you climb to the top of the spire and skull and the skull lake, like doesn't matter. Like I, I, that I did that with Rivali's Gale from uh, the top of a mountain on the other side of the ridge and just glided over there. That was not hard. So like you cut those ones out and I think you save a lot of room for, putting those resources into something to make dungeons appear in breath of the wild. Okay. And that's, that's fair. That's totally fair. Um, and I do agree with you. I think that we have 120 shrines in this game and not all of them are ones that I think we needed to have. I think we kind of go back to, especially kind of like what Mike was mentioning. There's kind of like a bloat of like, once you've beaten your first, like modest test of strength, you know, uh, after that, they're all really just a joke and they serve no challenging purpose, right? For sure. I would have preferred a system. I think I mentioned this a few episodes ago where if you only have, let, let's say there are only 15 test of strength shrines and the game knows which ones you've already done and they just get harder and harder and harder and harder until the very end when you're fighting like the Lionel equivalent of a guardian or something, you know? Yeah. Like, I think that would have been a really cool way to do this, but regardless, um, I think we're all pretty much on a page here. So I'm going to move past the discussion on dungeons and go to part three. Usually we uh, use this section to talk about best item, but we don't really have items in this game in the same way that we have in other Zelda games. So I think we're going to talk about uh, one. What is your favorite weapon? In the game? And two... Outside of the Master Sword. Yes. And two, what is your favorite ability in the game? Because I think if this was a conversation around what's the best item in the game, it's just the glider, because that glider is awesome. Mm, mm Mm-hmm. Okay, I guess I'll go first. Um, Favorite weapon, bow, or shield, basically, right, is what we're kind of going with. I guess you could do one in each category. I mean, I don't know. Uh, I, 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 let's say, let's just go with favorite, favorite of the three combined. Ooh, wow. That's actually really hard. Ooh. He had a thought. I, I love thunder weapons. Um, <laughs> specifically, the thunder longsword, not the not the great blade, but the regular uh, longsword, for two reasons. Number one, thunder weapons, lightning weapons in general, um, making hard enemies other than like Lynels drop their weapons is really really key and really really good. And also, it is a 
cool looking sword. Like it is one of the coolest designed weapons I've seen in any Zelda game. Like it is the the dual prong with the serrated blades on both sides. It charges up when it's depleted. It has like runes that go up both lengths of the blade. And then you can see it like generate almost like a lightsaber as it goes up to regenerate the uh, the lightning. Oh man, I love the lightning longsword. I think it's probably my favorite. I always keep a, I usually keep a spear, a great, or a thunder spear in my inventory, just because, um, you know, the elemental weapons in this game, especially the frost ones, I really don't get a whole lot of use out of. I usually have a fire sword so that I can light fires, right? Um, And I usually keep a thunder spear because they are bar none the best tool in the entire game for just clocking an enemy with once and disarming them and taking their weapons. And then bada bang, bada bang, you got them. You, you get a dead ski Lizalfos. Yeah, exactly. So those are great. I wouldn't say they're my favorite. Honestly, it's not even it's not anywhere close to the best weapon that you can get in the game. But I really enjoy anytime I get an eightfold blade. They look cool. Just because I like the samurai sword aspect of the whole thing, like the whole the whole Sheikah samurai aesthetic. I think those are pretty great. And I usually keep them around. Actually, probably my favorite. I don't even know if this is the question we're trying to answer, but my favorite looking item in the game is the shield of the mind's eye. Ooh, yeah. That's pretty cool. I I like it too. Yeah. It it looks super dope. And I mean, so half the time in this game, I'm just about the looks because you go through items so quickly that some of them that are really good end up not being as memorable because, yeah, they're in my inventory for a hot second and then they're gone. Right. So I just remember the way things look. Uh, the Shield of the Mind's Eye is fantastic. Um, what I'll go for is just the item that I kind of tend to use the most and end up with would be probably the Knights. Is it, is it Longsword or Broadsword? Uh, the one-handed one, right? Correct. Longsword. Yeah. So the Knight's Longsword is essentially, I always end up with two or three of these in my inventory, and I just use them as my main go-to. And I like the aesthetic. It, mm-hmm. It's pretty simplistic, yet regal looking. Well, they, yeah. look, they look like Aragorn's sword. Oh. They really did like the first one, not not uh, Andrew Eel, not but not the Flame of the West. <laughs> not the Flame of the West. <laughs> no. So, yeah, no Flame of the West here. But I mean, so the Knight's Longsword, it, it looks great, especially if you have Knight and his... Uh, Knight, you have Link in his <laughs> <laughs> in his knight's armor, and I mean it really completes a look to me, and it's yeah. also something I get enough to where I I use, use it, it frequently, consistently, yeah. yeah. And uh, so I mean I think that's why it becomes my favorite. I think there's an honorable mention to all the heroes' weapons. My problem being is I get these things that I tend to just put them in my house. That's exactly what I do every time. With every single champion weapon I get, it goes immediately onto a plaque in my house. Yeah, they all I don't want to break it. They all look amazing. They're all very useful, but I'm, I'm scared to break them. Yeah, I, I think that if that wasn't a concern, then I would probably be using Daybreaker as my shield for the entire game until I got the Hylian shield. This is my uh, almost once per episode at this point uh, time to say that I hate item durability and it's dumb. I understand fully the many times that people have pointed out to us on Twitter that Breath of the Wild would not be the game that it is without item durability. While that is true, I still hate it. Duly noted. <sighs> Look, I know this is a big part of your feelings about this game, so I feel like this is actually the section in which you should be able to make your final case on that, having just replayed it. Yeah, so I think really everything that Mike just said 
and everything that we said about things that we think are cool in this game. The fact that you can't do something, anything, even if it is abhorrently expensive to make those weapons or items a permanent or at least near permanent addition to your inventory. I genuinely hate that because there is nothing more frustrating to me than finally getting a piece of gear that is just like really good. And then you use it on one Lionel and you can never use it again. So, and I'm not done. <laughs> oh. Okay. Continue. I like some of this and I think I think the case can be made that there is only certain gear that can be upgraded to a durability perspective. Like maybe it's only royal guard gear or maybe it's only champion gear or maybe it's only XYZ. Like you put some limitations on it. And then the normal stuff you get, the traveler's swords, the knight's swords, the the soldier's blades, like any stuff like that, the stuff that you can get throughout the game that's, I don't want to say trash items, but like not unique or not special. But like if you get a royal broadsword, the black broadsword, um, man, those things are so cool. And you get like two of them in Hyrule Castle, in all of Hyrule Castle, you get like two. Like, I would love to be able to take one of those and do something like invest 10 diamonds and make that like quadruple sturdiness. Or do some special quest where you can pick like two items in the game to make permanent items. Mm-hmm. Just something. Yeah. And I and I, I will even agree that I think that that would be the next logical addition. I think that the the point of criticism is valid that the weapons especially the weapons that you get from the champions we have got emotional attachments to those champions and when we get their weapons we have emotional attachments to those by proxy and i think that the fact that they have basically the durability maybe with a little extra of any other weapon is a crime i think that all of those weapons should have had durability analogous to what the hylian shield has I absolutely agree. And right. like because the Hylian shield is a breakable item. You have to go way out of your way or just be really bad at shield parrying to break the Hylian shield. Sure. Um I and, and I totally agree with you on that. But let's put those aside for one second. Let's just talk about the 20 or so items in the the 20 or so weapons in the game which you can find infinite copies of. That's anything from a Boko club all the way up to a savage Lionel sword. Yeah, don't care about those. Cool. So the durability system, as it pertains to those, you're fine with. Yeah, don't care. Yeah, no, if it's an item that I just get through the course of play and I could take it or leave it, if it if it's something that I would be willing to drop for another item, cool. Be as durable or as not as, not as you desire. But the ones that I really get like after a challenging fight or through the course of the story— Please make it more durable or, you know, even maybe institute a repair mechanic where before it breaks, say that, okay, well, hey, the durability is getting low. You can now do four rubies Mm -hmm. to repair this sword. Exactly. I would love something like that just to make me feel less crappy about using my core. Yeah. And like, I think that's one place. And I used this. I don't know that I've used it so much throughout the season, but definitely before we got here, the Witcher 3 has item durability, but you have repair stations and you have repair kits that you can use throughout the game on gear that you enjoy that you have invested in to make sure that they don't break 
and and continue to use them, right? And I and even the the main quest stuff in Witcher Three has durability that you then have to use those types of items to keep it up and make sure that it doesn't lose uh, efficiency. I think that's a good system. I don't think that Breath of the Wild needs that for every single item. I think, like I said, it needs it for the unique or the special items. And the fact that it does not have that for anything outside of the Master Sword is, I'd. I'd think not a well-executed mechanic. Cool. So is it accurate to say that your issue with Breath of the Wild's item system is not with the durability and weapon durability mechanics? It is with the way that Breath of the Wild handles high emotional investment items within that mechanic. As a, Yeah, I guess the, the qualification at the very end of your sentence makes the whole sentence valid, yes. Cool. So that sounds like something we could probably fix in a sequel. I told you you couldn't say that anymore. <laughs> uh, at Nintendo. Uh, <laughs> Mr. Nintendo, please. Yeah. As, as this game's already done. <laughs> right. Exactly. I, I think it's pretty fair to say something like that will probably happen. But but as as a system of combat and like the extent to which you collect items to participate in that combat, overall, what I'm hearing is that you are mostly okay with it, outside of a few notable examples. I think that that's true until I get into master mode where I'm wasting half my inventory to kill a single white Lazolfos. Well, okay. I mean, I don't know. I I just played through master mode and it didn't really put me out, but I also don't participate in the... Ex- it, it, I don't participate in every possible engagement the way that you do, so I guess yeah, we, I do. We, probably, <laughs> we probably approach this in different ways, but... But regardless, I mean, I think you started with what sounded like a very strong condemnation of the entire combat inventory management system of Breath of the Wild, and we're now in a place where that's got some pretty significant caveats. Yeah, I would agree. Sweet. Uh, I should become a lawyer. Um, I don't think that's where you should take that. I think I will probably not abandon my entire career and go do something completely different right now. I think that's probably for the best. Oh, hey, real quick, before we move out of here, best rune on the Sheikah Slate. Everyone, go. There's a case to be made for stasis, but I'm going to say bombs. (laughs) Mike's just the mad bomber. We all know it. Uh, Upgraded stasis. Um, hmm, bombs. <laughs> you know, it's really funny because I would have said upgraded stasis any t- any playthrough before this one. I I feel like I just did not use it nearly as much in this playthrough. Uh, even in Trial of the Sword, I really feel like I did not get that much use out of it. Bombs, bombs. <laughs> no, I've got to give I've got to give it to bombs. I mean, like just like yeah, yeah. those bombs are great. Just. So, no, having infinite versions of them, the fact that they're a combat tool in addition to an environmental puzzle-solving tool, yeah, bombs are great. All right, let's move on to part four, which is everyone's favorite piece of music that they enc- that they encountered in Breath of the Wild. Matt, I know you already have yours teed up because you told me in no uncertain terms that I was not allowed to steal it. Hyrule Castle. Uh, it is... It is a really cool conglomeration of a lot of different styles. It's spooky. It contributes to what we said in the last episode is by far the most intense sense of place in the entire game. 
Uh, it has, like you said, Lyndon, and I didn't realize this until I went back through after we had actually already recorded the episode and I went back through and just kind of wandered around for a while. There's some serious Ballad of the Windfish, uh, esque themes going on in there. That's really fun. Um, I, I just love, I love being in high and also the fact that Hyrule Castle exterior and Hyrule Castle interior are slightly, are different. Not slightly. They're vastly different. Um, uh, yeah, I think the whole the musical themes within Hyrule Castle are phenomenal. So I agree with you. And I also think most of the the music in this game is fire. Um, totally agree. I'm going to go with Cass's theme for this game because not only is it recurring where you kind of have to go through this side quest of finding Cass and getting his shrines, but also the story behind Cass's theme is pretty entertaining um, and ends up being a pretty fun side quest just in its totality. But it also kind of brings me back to, I mean, I feel like I'm getting some, uh, some, uh, song of storms vibes from parts of it. And then just the fact ooh. that, ooh, yeah. Well, I mean, the, you know, Oh, I guess, I guess Guru Guru does not play an accordion. He has a music box, but they sound kind of same. They sound the samey. Yeah, so, they're, they're pretty similar. But I'm getting that in a conjunction with every time I hear this song, it's a mystery I need to solve. And I really mm. enjoy that. That is actually a really great use of environmental musicianship, I guess. I mean, like, yeah, I completely agree with you. Castle's theme is a really great one. Matt, I like the Hyrule Castle theme. I, um... I don't know. It, like it's neat and it definitely feels foreboding and, and, and uh, you know, it makes you feel a sense of, of dread. And so I think that that's really great. Um, I know that this is a bit of a cop out, but I just love the main theme of this entire game. Like, and, and I'll give you, I'll give you another one after that. No, that's fair. Cause I chose symphony of the goddess as mine yeah. for Skyward. Sword, I'll give so you another fair. one after that, but I just love the main theme of this entire game because I think that the main theme of Breath of the Wild just feels so stinking Breath of the Wild. As you play through the game, like that, you know, da 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 bum, Like, it, like, yes, it feels so, it's so great. It's such a great piece of music. But if you, and like, it, like it gives you that sense of adventure, but also that sense of kind of like post-apocalyptic adventure a little bit. It's also a totally unique piece of music. I don't think that it, it draws at least parts of it don't really draw from much else no it's unique to the zelda series and there you know there are pieces of music in breath of the wild that do draw from past zelda themes i love this game's version of of the temple of time for instance for sure i love its version of zora's domain um i love the the subtle ways in which the classic zelda theme pops up in here but i think overall you know my favorite piece of music in the entire game has honestly got to be i don't think any of you will have seen this coming the piece of music that plays when you are standing on a Sheikah tower. Okay. Yeah, I have to play that because I don't, I don't well, think I even He's going to definitely insert it, but I, I also get that sense of wonder whenever you find a Sheikah tower and you... Nope. That one? No? Not, not when you activate the Sheikah tower? Don't even try, man. standing on it. <laughs> not, when, not when you activate it, but when you just stand on it? Yep.
So here's my whole thing. It is such a subtle piece of music, but in some ways, the entire soundtrack of this game is very subtle. There's a lot of piano combined with subtle accents. The so- Seriously, I-, I don't know if I've said this this bluntly before, but I think that Breath of the Wild soundtrack is one of the most subtly gorgeous pieces of music that I have ever heard. It has so much personality. It makes you feel so like it. It is so much a part of what makes the overworld of Breath of the Wild feel like an interesting and ancient and rich place. Um, uh, like, and you know, Breath of the uh, Skyward Sword before this had a full orchestra, right, which was performing all of its music, and it felt very grand, and it felt very, you know, like. Indiana Jones by way of fantasy genre, right? Not subtle. <laughs> right, no, not subtle, and and that's okay, because that wasn't that game. But this game has got such a gorgeous, such a beautiful, understated soundtrack. And I've seen people online arguing up and down that Breath of the Wild just does not have a good soundtrack. And, I don't think that's and accurate I at all. I do not know what those people are smoking. Like, Yeah, I, I have to say that one of my most frequent uses of Breath of the Wild soundtrack is just as... Uh, is it the is it the hour and a half long rainy sound yes, soundtrack? Oh. Absolutely, I play that frequently while I'm working and whenever I have long periods between meetings, just because I have I have ADHD, so I have to have something that's occupying at least a portion of my brain so that I can focus on other things. And it can't be anything with words because most of what I'm doing is emails. So I'll just like have this environmental music going on in the background, like. Seven out of ten times, that's going to be something related to Breath of the Wild's overworld, rainy, or night themes. And it's just relaxing as hell. Yes. Yeah, so the so the Sheikah Tower theme, just because it's – to me, it's very relaxing and it does have that sense of impending exploration that you're talking about, Mike. Uh, my number two is definitely the Kakariko Village musical theme, especially at night because I love that duet that happens between the traditional Japanese shakuhachi flutes and then the Japanese strings. Um, it is highly feudal Japanese, and Kakariko Village has an aesthetic that really supports that, you know, cherry blossom trees and traditional Japanese architecture and whatnot. And I, I, I just – I love the soundtrack that plays in there, and I love that it's completely brand new. And like you said, Matt, it does not take um, – it does not adopt – uh, beats from the traditional Kakariko Village musical theme, which has repeated over multiple Zelda games, right? Um, this one is completely unique, and I think it's completely gorgeous, and it really speaks to the Japanese heritage of this game. So those are my two, Sheikah Tower theme and Kakariko Village theme. I'm not even going to say which one is one or two. I think either one really is is great. Um, sorry, did you have some? Okay. So let's move on into part five, which is the best side quest of the game. Weirdly enough, I feel like this is probably one that has less options than we all would have expected to have in in Breath of the Wild. I think for a game that's known as being the game of side quests, I think that the actual side quests that have emotional investment in storytelling are somewhat limited. Well, I mean, it's like defined side quest, right? I mean, if you're going through like kind of one off, hey, I found something like go feed my, you know, whatever creature or go take a picture of this. Go drop a hundred crickets in my girlfriend's house. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> that was so weird. <laughs> who doesn't love that? But I mean, like some of the side quests I would say aren't 
really side quests. They're more just like filler or fetch quest deals. They're very fetch questy, yes. Yeah. So I mean like the side quests are are somewhat limited in this game for as big as this game is. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. I, there are some really fun ones. Um, I think that you get some cool character moments. Uh, but overall, I think Breath of the Wild does have a lot of busy work to me. Um, things like go snag pictures of these things and come back to the stable. Or uh, go, like you said, collect crickets or baked apples or flint or luminous stones and bring them back for some rupees. But there are some quests that are a lot of fun. Um, there's one specifically from the Gerudo stable where this, uh, adventurer who has more or less hoodwinked all of his friends into thinking that he's this great, uh, warrior has brought them to this very dangerous part of the world and all Four or five of his friends get separated when they get attacked by a mob of bokoblins and they all get like stuck on these walkways that are around the whole canyon. And this guy leaves his friends, runs back to the stable and then like hires Link to go rescue his friends. So you have to go on all these walkways across the Gerudo Canyon and rescue all four or five of his buddies. And you tell them that, uh, hey, your dude is back at Gerudo Stable worried about you. You should probably go check in. And they're like, are you kidding me? He said he's this great warrior and he just left us out here and went back to safety. And then you go find him later after you rescue all of his friends. So you go back to the stable and he's like, oh, thank you so much for rescuing my friends. You know, friends are a great thing to have. And I think that you should really just learn all you can about them. I don't know what this says about us, but we've decided to disband our little group because uh, I'm not really sure why, but we're all just going to go our separate ways now. And uh, he pays you 300 rupees and you talk to all of his friends and they're like, yeah, this guy's a dick. (laughs) 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 And like you disband this group of travelers basically. And he's just oblivious. Yeah. He has no idea that everybody thinks he's the worst. I do think that there are a lot of fun little one-off things like that with, which uh, with a little bit of exploration paired with some, very snappy writing because the writers of this game were sassy, right? <laughs> they, had, they were very, very sassy. Oh, I would concur. Um, yeah, I think there's a lot of fun little ones like that. But when we're just talking about big side quests, I mean, there's really only two options here, right? You've got Terrytown and you've got Cass's Quest. Well, yeah, I think that those, I don't know, would you classify those necessarily as side quests? Yes, or, uh, yes, yes. Okay, yes. all right, all right. I all right, would say right, right. every Zelda game has got tentpole side quests for the most part, and those are the two for this game. Uh, and I personally find a little bit more emotional satisfaction in Cass's Quest. I get more chuckles out of Terrytown, but... You know, I think that they're I think that they're both good in their way. I think that Cass's quest specifically, I'm going to have to choose that one just because it harkens back to a method of storytelling that is used for Majora's Mask's side quests. And I really identified with it for that reason. It has emotional stakes. It's got like, um, you know, Cass is a, a character that has a lot of pathos. He just wants to return to his family, but he has this other duty that he feels like he has to fulfill first to impart his teacher's songs onto the hero so that the hero can find all these shrines or whatever. And I think at the very end of it, Cass has a very honest conversation with you about like what it means to him that you've gone on that journey with him. And so for that reason, I really, really like that one. And I, I don't think that's controversial again. No, but, not at all. But yeah, but I, I really do enjoy it. 
No, I, I also really like Cassus Quest. I feel like it's it's pretty fulfilling as far as side quests go. Um, and it continues for a while throughout the story. My two, and I don't know if whether these traditionally qualify as side quests, but I would say that Eventide Island is in itself a side quest. Mm-hmm. It's not required for the completion of the game, um, yet it is something that I find very fun every time I play this game, especially the earlier you go and the less powerful you are. Mm-hmm. Then I mean, I know it kind of starts you at ground zero, right? But if you've played this game 60 hours, then go to Eventide, it's different than jumping in and playing 10 hours <laughs> yeah. and going to Eventide. You For know sure. what I mean? If you go to Eventide with uh, 10 hearts, or sorry, like seven hearts versus 20, then yeah, you're, yes. you're, you're in a rough spot. One might say you're in a rougher spot. <laughs> so, But I, I, I thoroughly enjoy Eventide every time, just the challenge it brings. And then I really enjoy the quest to get the royal horse um the the white stallion mm. i feel like that's kind of something that tires ties into the main story through that mm-hmm. one memory yeah but also every time i'm like i gotta get my white horse mm. I, I want i want to run fast yeah i have actually never gotten the royal stallion because i always get epona from the uh amiibo cards and uh epona is the only horse that i keep in the stable because when it comes to the uh dark beast ganon fight i want to ride epona and feel like you know, the, you know, you can get the descendant hero. of Ganondorf's horse in this game. I did know that actually. How do you do that? Tell me about from it. the Twilight Princess amiibo card. I think. No, 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 no. There's a giant horse that's roaming the area back around where um, the horse god fountain Ugh, is. The so weirdo. Someone, yeah, yeah. I've got the giant horse before, and it is pretty fun. Yes, that's a. Dis- that, I think that they've said that's a descendant of Ganondorf's horse from right. Ocarina of Time. Oh, yeah. well, that, all black. That's massive. cool too. Yeah. And I've got that horse, but. Some of us poor kids don't have all the amiibos. Oh, I I stole it from Lyndon, so I'm I'm also a poor kid. I just steal. I got bootleg amiibo cards. That's <laughs> true. Jesus Christ! What, what he went tr- to he went to eBay. What a trifecta we are. <laughs> he went to eBay and said, "Here's all these cards, so I don't have to buy the actual figures." Okay, so Cass's Quest, White Stallion, sure for, for you. Uh, Cass's Quest as well. Like, all, all said and done, everything you said about it resonates really strongly. I think also one point in Cass's favor is that he knows who you are the whole time, but he doesn't ever, he never lets that on until the very end. And then he just like kind of pulls that out of his hat and he's like, yeah, I've known who you've been the whole time. And like, I was doing this for you. And like, mm-hmm. I thought that that was really, that was really cool. An honorable mention goes to anytime a star fragment falls out of the sky, which immediately sends you way off whatever the hell you were doing before. <laughs> and you immediately, no matter if you need it or not, you have to go get yeah, it. You got to go get it. So <laughs> there you go. All right. Well, let's move into part six, which is the final thoughts and ranking for Breath of the Wild. Oh, and here's where this is going to, so we're going to do the ranking at the end of this and before we get to that oh uh, i'm actually double th- i'm thinking i'm thinking about this now we should actually probably rank it first and then give our justifications for that okay so yeah i know man look matthew has looks of pain on his face i think this is actually going to be very difficult for him it is going to be extremely difficult um which should tell you something because i think matt had some certain preconceptions about this game before he went into it and he seems very conflicted now i am very conflicted do you see the pain mike i see such pain so here's if you guys only see his contorted sad sad red face so here's what we're gonna do it's also still 100 degrees out here <laughs> i'm going yeah also that so here's what we're gonna do i'm going to read from top or from bottom to top our ranking as it stands we are all gonna raise our hands 
And if you feel like Breath of the Wild is not as good as the game I mention, put your hand down. And the first time that we have not a majority, that's where it's going to sit. So okay? we, we hope we put our we hold our hands up. Yep. OK, that's a lot of hand holding. I was about high. to say, can we do it the opposite? Just ha- hand up when you think you're, you're at the bottom. No, we're strong. This is nope. our workout for the Ra- day. Raise okay, your hand. Fine. Fine. A link to the past. OK, everyone still has their hand up. Link's Awakening. Everyone still has their hand up. Skyward Sword. Matt still has his hand up. God damn. Oh, say it ain't so. Here's the real one. Ocarina of Time. Everyone still has their hand up. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen. The new official ranking of the Sacred Realm Zelda Retrospective Podcast is number one, Breath of the Wild. Number two, Ocarina of Time. Number three, Skyward Sword. Number four, Link's Awakening. And number five, A Link to the Past. Matt, what brought you to this point? That physically <laughs> that physically pained me. Just so everybody just holding is your aware. hand up that long. No, the, the <laughs> admitting that I at the end of all of at the end of this journey, as I I really do think that Breath of the Wild has flaws, and I think it has more of them than you I think has have ever given it credit for. I think objectively looking at this game, there are a lot of flaws. He said that at me, by the way, not Mike. Right, right, right. (laughs) Uh, There are a lot of flaws here. The lack of dungeons, the lack of a really primary antagonist that has any sort of characterization, the the weak-ish, not, not, I don't want to say weak, weak's not even the right word, a link that is not a strong standalone character, um, kind of the fetch fetch questiness of many of the side quests, item durability like there are some flaws here for sure and i think they're pretty pronounced but all of that to say i have so much fun playing this game every single time every time i play this game the breadth of combat that you can do the different ways you can engage with the game the different ways that you can go throughout the main story the different ways that you can engage with the world all of the things that make breath of the wild a grand experiment in redesigning the zelda formula has turned breath of the wild into my favorite zelda game on top of the fact that in replaying it, I have gained such a deeper appreciation for the story that is portrayed here that I don't think I previously had. And when I just have to objectively look at it all together and say, does Breath of the Wild have more flaws or less flaws than Skyward Sword? And I think that I think that the flaws within Breath of the Wild detract from the enjoyment of the game less than the flaws that Skyward Sword had. Um, And all of that comes together to create a successful grand experiment in the complete redesign of the Zelda formula. So, Mike, real quick, do we need to let you give your thoughts and then you bounce out of here? Are you into the bitter end? Let me do my thoughts first, and then we'll see if I have to bounce. Okay. The wife calls me. Mm-hmm. Ah, yes. Mike, where are you at? Uh, so I agree with what Matt said. I, I think it is a grand exper- experience in general. Um, so the way this game lands for me at the top of my list over my childhood favorite Ocarina of Time is the fact that as I've gone, 
um, and played Zelda since my preteen years. Um, they've constantly evolved and, and brought new things to the table. I think at this iteration, it's brought the most cool new things to the table. Um, and there are things that do detract from it. But I, I think, like you said, Matt, the, the net positives far outweigh the, the, the negatives that I have. Uh, but it, it's, it's still a growing beast, mm-hmm. Zelda. I, I mean, it's constantly growing and changing. And this is just the next iteration. One thing is that I thought I liked this game more before going into this game, but I thought it was recency bias. Mm-hmm. I thought that because it had been some time since I played some of the other Zeldas, including Ocarina of Time, that that's why I had such a high opinion of it. But one thing that this podcast has afforded me is I've played through several of my favorite Zeldas at this point, including Ocarina of Time. And I find that playing several of these Zeldas in the past two years, I still enjoyed this game above where I had originally ranked Ocarina. And can I say that I had not made my final decision on where I would rank this until about a third of the way through this episode when you said, Mike, that there are parts of every Zelda game that can get boring in the overworld as you're just basically transitioning between dungeons. And that rings so true to me personally that like there are parts of Zelda games. Dad said this about James Bond movies one time. James Bond movies are great, except every single one of them has an act that just drags and it kills the movie and it kills the momentum. And I think that that's very true of most mainline Zelda games is that you get to a point where you're just trying to get from one dungeon to the next or from one quest to the next. And the overworld no longer is interesting. The overworld no longer is challenging. Like all of those things lose its potency Breath of the Wild never loses that potency. It never loses its interest in exploration. It never loses its interest in just general combat. It never loses its interest in what could possibly be around the next bend. Even on my now, this is my fourth playthrough of the game, I'm still discovering new things. And that is something that no other mainline Zelda game, even my previous favorite Skyward Sword, has ever been able to do. I completely agree. And I think that uh, I think that what this game really is, is the ultimate fulfillment of the original Zelda promise, which is a completely open world that you can explore and you can discover things completely on your own terms within your own time. It's a game with no limits. It is it is such a beautiful game. Mike, do you have to bounce out of here? I do. I have fatherly responsibilities. Everybody, Matt and I are going to keep talking for just a few minutes, but Mike has, uh, it's very late over here and he's got a 30 minute drive home. So we're going to let uh, the detective go for this one. He will be back, of course, uh, to talk about uh, Zelda 1 and Zelda 2. We're always going to have the detective back on. Uh, Matt, can we just give a, a quick round of applause for uh, one of one of our greatest guests who is always on to give us some wonderful opinions and uh, and feedback on the games that we're playing mike we love you thank you so much for coming on to this thanks guys love you too thank you for having me drive safe bud bye okay so uh our our good friend mike the detective is uh he is on the road he's heading back home uh seriously once again we thank him so much uh for taking the time out of his week to come and talk to us about this because you know the thing is um you know i feel like mike is just a smart enough guy to where he 
truly elevates the conversation, you know? I mean, absolutely. I think all of the guests we've ever had on have, have done a huge part in elevating the conversation, right? Like that's why we can't just do the two of us all the time. I feel like we'd get into a cyclical pattern of, sure. uh, Of thought. So we uh, we are very blessed with a wide variety of recurring, highly intelligent people that can come on and and talk about this with us. So, yeah. Um, So I want to, I want to just go in with something I said in the, in the interim or the inner intermission is that, it, it was very, very hard for me to sit back and objectively look at, which has been the whole point of this podcast, is for us to objectively look at Zelda games as they are, try to, as best we can, put aside nostalgia and personal preference and and make some um, decisions and some uh, qualifications of, of how they are as games. And And I think that, my big sticking point with Skyward Sword having consistently been my favorite game is the fact that the story, in my opinion, is the best told story of any Zelda game. And I still do believe that, honestly. I still do believe that Skyward Sword's story overall is the best told and most engaging story of a Zelda game. But the things that Skyward Sword does poorly detract from the game overall in a more significant way than... um than the things that Breath of the Wild does poorly. And I think that all said and done with a complete package, Breath of the Wild comes to the table not only with a fresh, innovative perspective on what Zelda can be in the future moving forward. And Skyward Sword tried to do the same thing, but I don't think it did it as successfully. And, and so all of that comes together to to me to say that the story can't make up for being the best game the story by itself and there are a lot of other things i love about skyward sword for sure but i think that all said and done breath of the wild comes to the table with a stronger kit yeah i think it really is unfortunate because you you know that i love skyward sword you truly do and I think we we look more favorably on Skyward Sword than most other Zelda fans. Sure, yeah, absolutely. Sure. But there's no getting around the fact that Skyward Sword represents the, the the bitter end of one convention of making 3D Zelda games, mm-hmm. right? That was as far as they could take it, and by the time that they got there, it was truly showing its age. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that what Breath of the Wild represents is a transformational moment in the history of Zelda in the same way that Ocarina of Time was. Yeah, I totally agree. I think that that's an apt comparison just in the fact that there's a dynamic tone shift in what Zelda is trying to do. And if you don't let if you don't let a franchise evolve, the franchise will die. And unfortunately, I think the primary modern day example of that is Halo. Let the past go. Kill it if you have Kill to. Kill it if you have to. Yeah. Um <laughs> I uh, really well actually I actually kind of want to I'm curious what you mean by that because I I would have agreed with you until Halo Infinite previous to the campaign of Halo Infinite which I know I know Halo Infinite is having its own like you know like is it successful as a game as a service I mean I you know people have their own opinions about that I I have not been keeping up with Halo Infinite's like multiplayer seasonal structure at all. So, so let me, I'm going to, I'm going to dive into the qualification to answer most of your questions. Okay. So I think, I think Halo Infinite was really late to the party on trying to revitalize Halo as a franchise. I am 
to me personally as a Halo fan, and this is not a Halo podcast, so I don't want to go too far down this tangent, but to me personally as a Halo fan, I hope that Halo Infinite indicates a revitalization of the Halo campaign and story. Um, and because the, we loved the Halo Infinite absolutely, campaign. Absolutely, I loved the Halo Infinite campaign. It was amazing. Absolutely. But I think that where Halo 5 was the bitter end of Halo as it was, it was far worse and almost almost damning to the franchise. As Skyward Sword was the bitter end of what they had been doing with Zelda, but they were able to more successfully and I think more t- in a more timely manner pivot to and set the tone for gaming for the future, right? Because Breath of the Wild came out in 2017, 16? 17. 17. And it really set the tone, as we said, I think in the very first episode, set the tone for the the next, the last five years of games, because we're recording this in 2022. Yeah. The last five years of games have all taken pretty big inspiration from what Zelda did with Breath of the Wild and transitioning to the open world. Sure. I mean, to say something is a Breath of the Wild clone now is almost a trope. Exactly. And I think that, I think that Nintendo realized with Skyward Sword that Skyward Sword was not commercially successful. I think there were a lot of things that contributed to that, but Skyward Sword was a good game, but Skyward Sword was not the future of the franchise. And Nintendo was able to, in their very unique way as a game design company, uh, intuit that into what will the future of gaming look like. And and that's how you get Breath of the Wild. And as imperfect as it is, it is still phenomenal and it has still set the tone for a new generation of games that can be story driven, that can be open world, that can be exploration heavy, that can be all of these things without losing what makes them uniquely part of that franchise. Um, And I think that that is a huge testament to Nintendo as a company and to Zelda as a franchise, that it can be as flexible as it is and still maintain a unique sense of identity. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, There's something crazy that this game manages to do, which is be something completely Zelda and also completely new at the same time. Absolutely. It's it's an incredible balancing act to pull off. And I think that uh, whatever happens with the sequel and wherever 3D Zelda games go from here, I think Breath of the Wild will always be looked at as a watershed moment in gaming and also in the history of Zelda. Like, I I think the achievement that was uh, that was pulled off with this game is um, very hard to understate. I think the impact that Breath of the Wild's design will have on gaming for years and decades to come is going to be an ongoing story. I think you will continue to see influences of Breath of the Wild happening for a very, very long time. And I think that that is absolutely deserved. Um, I can't think of a single better uh, showcase for why we should you know, and and this is hard for me to say. You should always be okay with your favorite gaming studios taking as long as they need to make their games, right? Like for sure. Like seriously, please don't be dicks about that. But um, but also I think that even past that, I think that this is a great showcase for why you just like you let your favorite game studios just take the time that they need with the games that they have, because Breath of the Wild took a long time in the oven, and the final product that we got was polished to such an infinite degree like this game this is a game that like few people have broken people are finding new things to do in it every single day like Mm -hmm. 
in 2022, years on from its initial release, I'm still seeing videos every week that show people figuring out how to do a new thing in Breath of the Wild that plays 100% within its set physics and mechanics systems. Like, it's it, it's incredible. And if you want to see someone in our own community that's kind of a, a, a person of interest in this, in this type of activity, West3DP has posted a lot of videos to our Twitter of him doing these types of activities. Like, even within our own community of about a thousand or so people a week, <laughs> did we you see have... The, did you see the one where he turned the Master Cycle Zero into a motor for the raft? I did, and it was awesome. Like, <laughs> like, like uh, within our own community... People are posting videos and showing you ways to engage with the world of Breath of the Wild that is just mind-boggling that you could do within a Zelda game. But it's it's fresh, it's unique, it's innovative, it's polished. It, all of these things that make gaming what it is to us as, as a community, what it is to us as gamers, Breath of the Wild encompasses that in a very real way. Yep, I could not could not agree more. Um, I don't know. I mean, we're like so I, I guess this is the point in the podcast. We're kind of, you know, we've been doing this for like almost two hours, actually more than two hours now. But whatever. It's the Breath of the Wild recap episode. So we knew this one was gonna be beefy. It was gonna be beefy. Um where do you think they go from here? What do you want to see happen in the sequel to Breath of the Wild? based on what we've kind of had happen in this game. I want to see them take everything that made Breath of the Wild great and continue to iterate on it, but in a unique way. I want them to fix the things that are huge detractors. The the lack of emotional investment in items, which I think has been a big part of Zelda in general. Like the, the emotional investments you get in, uh, upgrading your Kokiri sword to the gilded blade, the emotional investments you get in your fairy's bow or in your hookshot or your long shot, uh, the emotional investments you get throughout the course of obtaining these items. I want them to fix that. I want them to give us actual dungeons. Um, I think that that has been the biggest sticking point and the most loud and clear feedback from this entire game is that while shrines are great, there is no replacement for a true Zelda dungeon experience. It doesn't have to be nine dungeons. It doesn't have to be 13 dungeons. The whole game doesn't have to be dungeons the way Breath of the or the way Skyward Sword was basically a dungeon after dungeon after dungeon after dungeon. You can do what you did with Breath of the Wild, but Spend some of those dev resources on just three or four real true dungeons and just move that forward. I think that you don't have to completely leave the past behind. You don't have to kill it. Uh, You can take the good things that were there and bring them into the future with you. Granted, in a a little bit of a different way, but when something's good, you don't. You know, you don't necessarily have to, if it ain't broke, but also iteration. Yeah, uh, sure. I, 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 I that's think, where I'm at. Sure. I think I have a slightly divergent opinion from yours, honestly. Oh, tell me. Because I think, I agree with you. I think that, um, there, from an engine standpoint and a mechanic standpoint, there are things that I think could be refined in the sequel to Breath of the Wild. But my thing is, I don't think that Nintendo has ever done, and I would never want them to do a thing where with, the sequel to a successful Zelda game, they set out to make that same game, but better. 
I don't think that that's ever happened. You don't think that that's. No. Think you about what you know. You know what? Actually, you're right. Compared to so like Majora's Mask Majora's and Ocarina, Ocarina, Ocarina of Time. Time. Very different games. Very different games. Same engine. Yeah. So I guess what I mean by I guess what I mean by that is don't take away the open world. Don't take away the exploration. Don't take away the movement. Don't take away the some of the things that we love about Breath of the Wild. The mm-hmm. the oh, the infinite exploration of the overworld the infinite uh, combination of things you can do like don't take away those things that make breath of the wild great but do do something to iterate on it and i think what majora's mask did for ocarina of time was it took the characterization that became more prevalent and more possible with 3d and it like blew that to a thousand with the side quests and it sure. blew that to a thousand sure. with uh, all the mask quests and the various things you could do. And I think that there's a real opportunity here to take those things about breath of the wild without making it without doing the dragon age inquisition uh, death march of just make a huge world. That's empty. I don't think, I don't think that that's the way to go, but like you take, you take what was good and you find the things about it and you iterate on it to a point that makes it unique, but still grounded in that identity. Yeah, you want the bones to be there, I think. Right. We very much, I think you and I both want the sequel to Breath of the Wild to be the Majora's Mask to this game's Ocarina of Time. And, and so you want the same feel, you want the bones of the experience to be there, but you want the story that's being told and the way that it's being told to be unique enough to justify having created another game because Nintendo yes. has never made a Zelda game that didn't have some kind of specific hook, right? Like, yeah, it, it's always got something. Um, they have never rested on their laurels. They always push the envelope. Yeah. And that's what we love about Zelda games. Right. And, and sometimes they work and sometimes they don't, uh, stylus based controls for uh, spirit tracks. Uh, well, we'll see how we feel about that when we get <laughs> that's there. That's true. Yeah. Um, no, I think it's I think there is a huge opportunity to um, iterate that is exciting. And I think Breath of the Wild offers more opportunity for that than any previous game just because of the technological advances within the gaming industry in the last 20 years. Yeah, definitely. And, and it's it's very exciting. And I know I told you you couldn't talk about Breath of the Wild sequel anymore, but I'm going to because I didn't tell myself I couldn't. Um, I'm so excited Fair. to see... The payoff from not only the characters that we've invested in, specifically Zelda. I'm so excited to see Zelda's story continue on in Breath of the Wild 2. And all of the teasers that we've gotten for Link's character seems like he might get more fully fleshed out. He seems like he might get some more um, emotional character development. There's things that I'm so excited for Breath of the Wild 2, um, apart from just the fact that it looks like there's going to be some really cool new mechanics. There's going to be a Skyloft-esque portion of the game. That's all exciting, but I think that there's a lot of things to look forward to in this future that Breath of the Wild has given us that I don't think we could have been as excited of the future of Zelda had they stuck with the Skyward Sword formula. I think Breath of the Wild opens more doors and leaves the leaves the room open for a lot more excitement than than Skyward Sword would have, unfortunately. Yeah. Okay. Well, and I feel like we're it sounds like we're kind of ragging on Skyward Sword right now. No, not at all. I I 
as you all know, Skyward Sword is my second favorite Zelda game in the whole franchise. So not ragging on it whatsoever. I just think it's it's a different era of game. Yeah. Definitely. Well, that brings us to the end of the Sacred Realms recap. We will, of course, do this again next season when we rank and review The Legend of Zelda up against all these other ones. And then we'll do it again at the end of next season when we rank and review the uh, it's not even The Legend of Zelda, it's Zelda 2, The Adventure of Link against all the other ones. So we've got more of these coming before we get out of here, though. There's one last thing we have to do. What's that? This is the point of the podcast where we ask Matt to wrap up this entire oh, game <laughs> in as succinct a way as he could possibly think to do. Are you serious? Do it. Jesus. Okay. Um. <laughs> Got him. <laughs> wow. Okay. Um. <laughs> have we ever done this before? I don't think we have. I don't know, but you need to do it now. <laughs> Fine. Um. Breath of the Wild <laughs> sets us on a very unique journey from the get-go, from a blank slate into a world that is as captivating as it is broad. It is beautiful, and it is tragic, and it has such a setting that has never been mirrored in another Zelda game. We have protagonists, we have side characters, we have all of these things that come together to create a true masterpiece of story and setting and place. Link and Zelda go through this journey, mostly through memories and flashbacks as Link recovers his identity to show what Hyrule was over a hundred years ago and to see who Princess Zelda was as a person and who we as the main character Link are to her. We go through this wide breadth, this land of Hyrule, uh, exploring and defeating enemies and reinvigorating the land as best we can, freeing the divine beasts and the spirit of the champions until we finally get to a place where we have to confront the final calamity, the thing that has brought the kingdom low over a hundred years ago. All of this culminates in an epic final battle when we finally get to meet face to face with Zelda and reinvigorate our friendship and then move forward with a very hopeful tone into the next era of Zelda. Well done, Matt. I don't think I could have done it better myself. Yeah, that was that was really hard. I think that kind of faltered <laughs> on that one. I'm not going to lie. No, that no, felt no, a little no, no, rough, It was good. It was good. It was really good. It was really good. It was a big job. It was a big Oof. job. Yeah. Okay. Well, that truly brings us to the end of this uh, edition of the Sacred Realms recap. Um, man, Breath of the Wild, huh, Matt? Mm. Ben, it's been a whole. It's been a fun season. It's been a whole, whole big chunk of time. But here we are at the end of it, and. Uh, I'm really happy that we chose to do it in the way and time that we did. Absolutely. I think that um, this gives us ample time to rest and recover and play some other games between now and Breath of the Wild 2, which will, I assume, be an equally um, incredible task. Yep. Yep. Couldn't agree more. Well, Matt, are you ready to get out of here for tonight? 
I am. I'm ready to stop sweating at 1130 at night and go inside to the air conditioning. Sounds good. Sounds good. If you enjoyed today's show and you would like a little extra Sacred Realms in your life, you can head over to patreon.com slash Sacred Realms pod and become a patron. If you've got no rupees, it is not a problem. Five star Apple podcast reviews are a great free way to support us. More reviews means that more people see our show and that makes us very happy. Hylians. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Sacred Realms pod for updates on the podcast and for behind the scenes action. Sacred Realms will be back next Wednesday with our thoughts on the game intro and dungeon one of the Legend of Zelda. Um, Man, that's going to be a journey. That's going to be one that we have not looked forward to, but it will be a journey. Ah, I don't know. You know, I, I, I would say I've been apprehensive about it, but I'm I'm looking forward to the challenge. And, you know, in a lot of weird ways, I think that I'm actually more excited to play Zelda, too. Uh, you know, I guess we'll see where we land on it because, uh, there's a <laughs> apprehensive is the right word, I guess. <laughs> oh, it's going to be, a, it's going to be a fun time. Um, but in some ways it feels very appropriate to play well, this game, right? We after always have fun. Like, yeah. That, that's one thing about this podcast. We always have fun. 1000%. We would love for you to play along with us and to share your thoughts on our social channels. The Legend of Zelda can be played on the Nintendo Entertainment System, on the uh, Game Boy Advance, on oh, geez, I'm trying to think. Like it's also on the 3DS. It's on the it's on the, on the 3DS eShop. It's on the Wii U eShop. It's, yeah, it's on the Switch. It's damn near everywhere. It's on your it's it's on your NES Classic Mini system that they made. It's, it, oh, that's true. They did do that. They did do that. Most importantly of all, it is. Available to play on the Nintendo Switch uh, with an online subscription, which is the way that we are going to be playing it because you can pause and rewind in that version. Yeah, we're going to be doing that a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's true. But in the meantime, may your hearts be full. May your arrows never miss. We will catch y'all next time. Sacred Realms is an independent podcast production, which is produced, edited, and mixed by me, Lyndon Willoughby. Our music comes from Zelda and Chill by Mikkel and is graciously provided to us by Mikkel and Game Chops Records. Zelda and Chill is available to stream on Spotify or to purchase directly from GameChops.com. Finally, our thanks go to Nintendo for creating such exceptional and innovative experiences. Bye!